0: Hey hey, Mark here from Talking Joe. Today's episode is rather special. We are talking to the Hasbro legend, Kirk Bazigian. Uh, Before we start, I'll let you know that this was originally recorded as a live stream, so you can head on over to our YouTube channel and watch as the live stream with the visual content. With all that said, though, the visual content is not mandatory. I'm sure you can get by fine with just listening to the solid gold chat that we had with Kirk let's get into it here we go live from the Talking Joe studios Talking Joe (laughs) Talking Joe is on the air hey 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 it's me Mark and welcome to Talking Joe we've got a very exciting episode for you to today and we are going to be joined by a very very special guest gi joe legend kirk bazillion but i'm not going to be doing it alone because i will be joined by regular co-host tim
1: finn Mm. hello mark and hello (laughs) listeners and viewers
0: good to have you uh with us tim uh now about to join us and here's here's my here's my blurb uh, is is going to be Kurt Vesigian. He's one of the most influential contributors to G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero at Hasbro and the man behind many of the most diabolical elements of the line that got us hooked for life. Uh, he worked with Bob Prupis on the brand since before the big launch in 1982 as G.I. Joe product manager from 82 to 84 and then served on and off through the Rhine through to 1994 the last year that the original run of a real american hero was on the shelves so here he is thanks for joining us kirk
2: hey guys nice seeing you
0: it's very good to to have you uh with us and i was thinking you know particularly with it being uh, the 40th uh, anniversary of uh of the line what better person to have joining us there we go 40th anniversary of uh the GI Joe Real American he- Hero toy and and comic. Uh most importantly for for us as a comic centric podcast the the comic but um uh I think we you know we love both equally generally. So uh, very excited to, to have someone of uh uh your status jo- joining us to to talk through talk through some of the origins particularly of of the GI Joe brand and and the uh the the comic. Great. So I gave a little bit of a, a, a clue to some of your, your history, but do you want to give us the, the plotted history of, uh, sort of your time, uh, at Hasbro and specifically, uh, around the GI Joe brand?
2: Sure. Um, well, I started at Hasbro, um, well before the GI Joe brand, uh, was reintroduced in 1982. I started, I started working at Hasbro in 1978, the summer of 1978 as an advertising copywriter. So I was responsible for doing a lot of the, um, Game instructions, all the packaging, catalog copy, etc. And uh, as a matter of fact, one of the last um, items of the original uh, GI Joe line, the 1964 line that morphed into the Super Joe line, I actually wrote the package copy for um, Terron, the ultimate uh, villain, the Beast from Beyond, which was like a mechanized robotic dinosaur. And uh, when I joined uh, the uh, Hasbro. Uh, the copywriter that i i uh, replaced she moved on to the marketing department and that was my very first project my very first day at, at hasbro was to complete that uh package uh-huh. and write the instructions for that so uh it was a it was a toy well well ahead of its time
1: <laughs>
0: and very well written as well but <laughs> yeah it sound it does sound like a, a wild uh, a wild toy to get started yeah like you say ahead of its time it had some quite inventive play features yeah, that, I mean, that was, maybe got
2: it was motorized. It, it used infrared light as a weapon. Um, it was, it truly was, a, a, an idea way ahead of its time. And, and unfortunately it came at the tail end of when the original mm. series of G.I. Joe was winding down.
0: Okay. So, so from, uh, your initial copywriting and the tail end of, of the original G.I. Joe brands, uh, what, what was it? What happened next?
2: Well, well from there, um, I was, um, I, as, as a copywriter, I got to interact with all the, uh, the marketing department and I, uh, struck up a relationship with Bob Prupas. Um, he and I became, uh, great friends. He became a mentor of mine throughout my career. Um, and, uh, Bob was a former toy buyer. He had worked at, um, a retailer called, uh, two guys, which was a discount retailer in the middle Atlantic States here in, here in the U S and, um he understood the success of the original uh, G.I. Joe line and he was always lobbying. He had joined Hasbro in 78, right after Toy Fair of 78. So about four or five months before I joined. Um, and he was always lobbying once he got there to try to re, uh, have a way to return G.I. Joe to the Hasbro line. Um, and his original plan was to just simply redo the 12 inch line. Um, And, uh, he asked me as a copywriter, he asked me to help put together a sales presentation that he could take on a trip to, uh, Sears Sears at the time was the largest retailer here in the United States. Uh, Believe it or not, Mm. they were bigger than, they were bigger than Walmart. Um, and I
0: know that the, yeah, the Sears catalog sort of lives on in, in legend.
2: Yes. (laughs) And, And so Bob. Bob knew the buyers there and and he asked me to put together a a, a presentation. And this was before the, before the era of PowerPoint. Um, so we put together art boards and, and I gave, I wrote him a script and uh, he took it out to Sears and uh, came back three days later with his tail between his legs because, <laughs> because Sears said, no way, you know, the line had just been, you know, had been so, uh, so awful in the declining years of 76, 77 and, and 78, that uh, they they felt it was just too soon to reintroduce. So we kind of backburned it. But that relationship that I struck up with, Barb, with Bob uh, eventually led to him hiring me as a product manager to uh, join the marketing department and work directly under him. And I started doing that in
0: 1980. Very good. And uh, so Bob, he didn't sort, he was a uh... I guess it, what is the metaphor? Is it a, a sort of some, a dog with a, something in his teeth that wouldn't let go that, oh, uh, uh, that yeah, the yeah, GI yeah. Joe brand he didn't, yeah. he wouldn't le- leave, leave it there. <laughs> yeah.
2: To him, no, no meant maybe, you know, if somebody told him, <laughs> no, it just meant maybe, you know, so uh, we. Yeah. Uh, could,
0: the, the, yeah, each no just takes, gets you closer to the yes. Right. <laughs> exactly.
2: So we, we, we would revisit how to reintroduce GI Joe uh several different times between 1980 and 1981 uh which Mm -hmm. is when we actually got the go-ahead uh to to work on it and uh the big the big impetus i believe um was um uh the olympics the 1980 olympics um bob happened to be up in boston uh at a a brunch on a sunday and uh, the united states had just defeated um uh, everyone thinks it was the, the Russians, but I believe it was Sweden that we had defeated uh, to then move on in the Olympics to take on the Russians, which we also defeated. Um, and uh, Bob came in on Monday morning all charged up because while uh, he was watching the uh, screen at the bar at, at brunch um, and America uh, won that uh, that game, the bar erupted into you know the typical USA, USA, USA. Bob came in on Monday morning and he said there's a spirit of patriotism sweeping this country. Now we've got to cash in on it. So he called an emergency meeting of, of me, uh, the R and D department. And he said, we have to figure out a way to bring back GI Joe. And, um, we were doing it under the radar. Uh, this was not part of, um, any sanctioned, uh, product development. Uh, we had, we had the head of product development in on it, Steve Deguano and, uh, others, but um, our bosses in marketing, uh, we kept them in the dark until we were, until it, because they would have killed it. They just would have just pulled the plug on it. Um, Hasbro was going in a different direction at the time. Um, Hasbro was moving into a an era of um, uh, less and less resources. Our, I mean, literally the company was had a foot, one foot in the grave. It it was being referred to by the toy press as has been, um, and. Uh, yeah, and you know, so it was it was a it was a struggle to get any kind of money for um to fund things, and uh, we kept it under on the down low, for you know for a few months until we were ready to unveil what we planned to do, and what we planned to do was what you see basically in the 1982 toy line. It was um, give up on the 12 inch brand, uh, instead of collecting, uh, instead of buying a figure. The whole razor razor blade strategy of Barbie and GI Joe, which was to buy a 12 inch figure that was uh, dressed in basic you know, utility fatigues uh, and then go back each week and add to your collection by buying more and more uh, upscale equipment and uniforms. Um, we decided to um, model our toy line after what had been happening in the world of action figures, which was a smaller figure, um, which basically started with Micronauts um micronauts was a three and three quarter inch you know one of the the lead figures in that line was a three and three quarter inch uh, line of figures with vehicles uh star wars adapted that and set the standard of that mm-hmm. three and three quarter four inch figure uh and so we just said the razor razor late razor razor blade will be by the vehicle and use the figures as the blades you're going to want to fill up the vehicle with all the figures and that was our basic strategy that carried through for the next, you know, 14 years.
0: Right. So, and so once you had been doing your, your secret research, you, you'd sort of take, as I understand it, it came into, you know, the boardroom presentation for the kind of, uh, you know, sort of prove what you've got or shut up kind of, uh, <laughs> approach. Well, and, that, that, and, and that was
2: exactly it. And, and we were, we were, it was, you know, prove what you've got. And we were told you got nothing. And we were told that three times. Mm. And like I said earlier, Bob's response to all that was a no simply means maybe. So let's figure out, let's go back and figure out how to, uh, how to do this better. Um, the third time, we actually the second time we showed it, the third time really was the charm. Um, the, the second time we showed it, uh, Stephen Hassenfeld, who, was the chairman of of Hasbro at the time, said, you're not showing me anything I want to do right now. I'm not going to invest this company's limited resources into a brand new boys' action figure line because you're just not showing me anything exciting.
1: Mm. He
2: said, you have two weeks to put together a plan that will excite me. And so so, uh, after he left the meeting, uh, we all thought, well, that's it, we're done. Uh, Bob said, let's go boys. we got two weeks to prove it. So he called in the ad agency, our ad agency, Griffin Bacall. And the next day they were up in Rhode Island. We were in a conference room. We showed Griffin Bacall what we had plotted out as our line. Um, and the discussion centered on what can we do to turn this line into a, a real brand? How do we get it launched? And I remember Joe Bacall saying, Um, well, we're at a major disadvantage because in today's world of action figures, um, boys need a storyline. They need a way to understand how to play with the toy you're, you're showing them. Mm -hmm. Star Wars has a storyline. Star Wars had that very first movie. They had the second movie that was coming out or had come out. I forget the the timeline now. Um, but they said, uh, we don't have a $30 million movie. So we got to come up with something to to uh to tell a story. And uh, so that's what we spent the afternoon brainstorming and what what the the brainstorm eventually led to um being the youngest person in the room at the time. Um <laughs> believe it or not, uh I was busy collecting comic books. I'd been collecting comic books since I was about 9 or 10 years old. Um and so I w- I was collecting comic books and To some degree, baseball trading cards, and um, my at at, I mean, just off the top of my head, I said, "Why don't we uh, think about um, uh, baseball trading cards? Why don't we think about including on every package um, uh, a baseball trading card, a trading card?" Which eventually led to the file cards. So that you know that was an idea idea that you know certainly was easy to do, Um, and then uh, the discussion. I remember Tom Griffin saying, well, yeah, that's great, but it's still not going to tell the story. We need something to tell the story. Uh, so again, you know, thinking back to what I did as a kid, I read comic books. I said, why don't we plan to put together a comic book? And what I had in the back of my mind, what I had remembered and what I I think I what I had thought about was. Um, when G.I. Joe first came out, I believe it was the second year. Um, DC Comics did a two or three issue series of GI Joe comic books. Um, I happen to have one of them in my collection. I mean, I remember buying an issue um, of it, and, and I, um, which I still have. I still have that that issue of that comic book. Um, and I think that was part <laughs> of the of my making a suggestion that, um, yeah, I don't have that issue. That's maybe issue one. I think I have the second issue of that comic um let me see if i have it i think i pulled it out for today <laughs>
0: give me a sec yeah this the the slide is, is is got that original joe cuba art from the the dc comics version of gi joe yeah. and uh, i've also included on there some of the uh the sergeant savage joe cuba as as well as a bit of a, a segue because um i know that you've said before that uh that kind of uh, Joe Kubert would have been the artist that you would have uh, loved to have uh, returned to to the G, to the Marvel book if uh, if you could have uh, if me, you could have had him
2: Yeah I mean to me there is no one better than Joe Kubert uh with the well I'll 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 modify that I think Russ Heath was my would be my second choice um but I don't know if you guys can see this but this is Let me
0: uh let me just maximize that
2: So this is this oh, cool. is the this is my issue um, you know my copy of my um, cattle uh, co- comic book uh which was you know the jejo uh, it's part of the showcase uh, series of comics so mm. this is this is issue 54 but um, it was the first uh, second issue I believe of yeah it says it right there I'm sorry right there in the top it says second blazing battle book.
1: And uh-huh. for for context uh, we can remind our viewers and listeners that uh, the 60s GI Joe there were no there were no names there was no story associated directly with the toy Correct. There were no code names there were just military roles there were just yeah. uniforms that belonged to uh, to 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 branches and and types and so this comic book was a tie-in but it was an indirect one it doesn't say Hasbro anywhere on it and no and and uh the, and the two things series, yeah and it was
2: a series of um it was a series of uh stories you know air force uh sailor marine and soldier which were the you know the, the four branches of the service that um okay. Uh, that uh, was represented by GI Joe, so it's kind of an
1: anthology series, and, and not then, that different from other war comics that were being published in the era. The difference here is just is the name. That correct. That is the tie-in. Yes.
0: Because there was there was another there was another comic uh, by Joe Kubert as well called GI Combat.
2: Yes. Well, Kubert Kubert did Cuba did the covers for for a lot of DC comics. <laughs> I mean, he was a wizard at 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 coming up with, uh, cover ideas. There were other artists that, you know, did the inside work. So I'm always disappointed when I go to a show and I, I find it, I look at, I pick up a G, uh, I pick up a cover with Kubert on the cover of a Sergeant rock. And, uh, when I end up getting it home after I open up the little cellophane, uh, or, you know, sleeve and it's Jerry Grandinetti who did the art, you know, it's like, so disappointed. (laughs) But uh, I just noticed, too, that um, this copy that I have of uh, this G.I. Joe, I have it autographed by Joe. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> I, uh, when when we did Sergeant Savage um, and uh, I decided to contact Joe to uh, uh, see if he'd help contribute to it, um, When at our very first meeting, I took this copy, copy of the comic book and he autographed it to me. He says that, cool. September eighth, nineteen ninety three, to Kirk, with best regards, Joe Kubert. So it's kind of cool.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, we we're, jump, we're, we're jumping ahead in history, but but that that was must have been yeah, sort of a, a cool fanboy moment of your yeah, childhood absolutely. kind of favorite artist sort of coming yeah. to collaborate on uh, on the on the line with you. Yeah. So
1: Kirk, Kirk, yeah. it's nineteen, it's nineteen eighty one, and yeah, uh, you're in your twenties and you've got your got this you've got a a real job with a capital j (laughs) are you are you still at that point uh buying comics regularly were you getting them in your 20s you were still okay i I I still buy them today so uh excellent so so okay so you had not given up on comics in your teens no where where did you get your comics and in your in your youngest years and then into your 20s did that change where you got your comics
2: oh yeah there was a whole evolution um the comics that i i mean my very first comic book um and i know i kind of prepped for this because i had asked you guys what we were going to be talking about so i wanted to have some visuals so my very first comic i actually happen to have how this survived
1: because my my
2: mother would purge my collection oh no period oh the typical you know yeah, mother, yeah, yeah so my had an older cousin uh he was about four years older than i was um and he is the one who got me introduced to comics um and i'm gonna guess i was introduced to comics maybe 1958 59 when i was about seven years old um and the the one comic i don't understand how this survived okay and maybe it's just because i kept it under my pillow at night i don't know (laughs) but but it's a joe kubert cover our army at war okay um 12 cents so you know this is an oldie but goodie and it certainly is well worn and i've read it many times um and it's him you know with uh with uh you know easy company and i'm just looking at the yeah december 1961 so i've been i've been reading comics probably a year or two before this, but literally I started collecting comics around this time, 1961. So I would have been about eight or nine years old at the time.
1: Where did and you get them?
2: I would get them at uh local drugstores. On on the spinner magazine, racks or, yep, or magazine racks. Hat? The magazine racks at local drugstores. In fact, around here we didn't even have spinner racks. The the drugstores would put them right up right in there, mix them right in with their magazine rack. Um, and so the lower shelf would always be, um, comic books and it would be, you know, whatever, uh, uh, Archie comics, uh, DC comics. And you'd have to, you'd have to kind of fumble through the, the, uh, titles to find the ones you were looking for. And they only got maybe even one or two, maybe if you were lucky, they'd have three copies of a particular title. Um, so I had to make sure I found out this, that they'd get them in on a Tuesday Um, so I'd, I'd make sure I'd get to that drugstore and they weren't that close. I had to do a little bit of, you know, walking. Um, but I would make that route every, uh, every Tuesday. Then when I got into high school, um, there was a drugstore right across the street from my high school. And I discovered it wasn't only on Tuesdays that that drugstore was getting their, uh, issues. They were also getting delivery on Thursday. So, um, I would, as soon as school was out, bang, I was across it, Cause my father would pick me up. Um, uh, cause it, it, the school was a, a high Catholic high school of several miles from my house. So my father would pick me up like at uh, two thirty. two 30. So I had between two 15 and two 30 to run over to this, to the drugstore, <laughs> scan the rack, you know, buy the three or four issues that I would, I was interested in buying and be waiting for him outside the door, you know? Um, so that's when I, that's really where my, I purchased my comic books, all local uh, drugstores. Did you have um, an allowance?
1: Did you have a job in middle school, high school?
2: Uh, I, ha- I didn't have a, I had an, allo- well, I had a job at my father's store. He had, had a small neighborhood market. Um, it was never a set salary. He would always just give me, you know, a couple of bucks at the end of every week for helping him in the store. Cause he didn't believe that you should be paid to help your father. <laughs> so, so, uh, but he, he, was a great dad. Um, you know, he's still around and he's still a great dad and, uh, uh, anything I ever wanted, uh, you know, if I could make the case for it, you know, <laughs> and at first he didn't like the idea of comic books. Uh, but then he and my mom both recognized that, Hey, at least he's reading something. Um, and so, uh, comic books led to, you know, me collecting paperback, you know, science fiction and fantasy. Um, and then obviously reading good literature. Uh huh. But, <laughs> so, but as model a- kits, I mean, model kits. My father had model kits in his store, he sold model kits in the store. Uh, that's given me a life. I have two lifelong passions collecting comic books and building model kits. And, uh, you know, both have, uh, were, you know, uh, enthusiastically endorsed by both my mother and father so if, if anything i wanted i didn't get an allowance but if i wanted a model kit and we happened to be out shopping okay go buy it you you know you helped in the store this week you you cut your our lawn your grandmother's
1: lawn no problem here you
2: know so that that's how i was paid
1: so in the early 60s right we know that the marvel universe the modern marvel universe shows up in 61 and evolves over the next couple of years and the innovations there are that um, the creators are credited at the beginning of the story, right yep, yep. Uh, the creators were not credited in all those DC comics. Nope. Um, the, the characters were more uh, relatable and it was it was the real world. it wasn't these it wasn't these fictionalized cities as templates for real cities um, and and the characters had uh, complexity and difficulty that uh, you know a Superman or a Wonder Woman wouldn't have. So if you started reading comics before, the Marvel age. Um, and I know that you are a Marvel guy. Can right. you talk about getting to know the early Marvel universe and, and what it, what it did for you? Yeah. Well, that, that's another great story. Um, and that comes
2: back to the purge. The first of the comic
1: book.
2: <laughs> <course>. <laughs> uh, like I say, my, my, my older cousin introduced me to, to comics and those were primarily DC. Um, Superman, Batman, Um, And then all the war comics, Star Spangled War stories, Our Fighting Forces, G.I. Combat. But my favorite was always Sergeant Rock because those others were mostly anthology series. There were no central heroes until later on, the Haunted Tank took over G.I. Combat. But, But Rock was the first... I'm not a comic book historian. I just happen to be a comic book fan. Rock, I believe, was like the first war comic continuous storyline uh hero and and I kind of always gravitated to storylines and the characters, et cetera, getting to know the characters. Um in '61, uh so I guess I would have been nine years old, um, a cousin of mine, my peer, um, we were visit I was visiting his house one Sunday and in the summer we'd visit almost every Sunday. Either they'd come over to our house, we'd go over there to his house. And he had a comic book that just blew my mind. And it was Fantastic Four. And it was like, oh my gosh, this is so different than anything. Because, you know, up to then I was reading, you know, the and I hated them, but they were things to read. The Marvel um, monster books, you know, the Fin Fang Foom era of uh, Marvel Comics. Um, and then uh, occasionally, I'd, and, and, and though I wasn't a fan um I'd read uh, Marvel Westerns, you know, Kid Colt and Rawhide Kid. Um, I'm more of a fan today uh, because, I, you know, maybe it's, you know, you get older and you start looking at nostalgia. My wife thinks I'm losing my mind because every Saturday I put on the on the TV and I'm, I'm watching one of the channels that's showing old Westerns. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I look at the stories that I wrote, I watched as a kid. And I have started buying the collections of Kid Colt and Rawhide Kid to kind of just reread the things that I missed. To be quite honest, I don't think I missed much. Um, <laughs> I, I look at the artwork and I look at the stories and I just say, wow, this is even the Kirby artwork. I just say is so simplistic and the stories are so simplistic. But Fantastic Four was something different. And I knew it was something different. And I asked my cousin, I said, I said, uh, Snip, his nickname was Snip. He said, Snip, can I have this? And he said, sure, I'm done reading it. And that began my quote collection of Marvel comics. Well, I had collected, you know, remember, I'm only about nine, ten years old at the time, so I don't have a lot of allowance. The only time I'm going to get a comic book is if I happen to, you know, walk to the, to the drugstore with my mom or my dad takes me to somewhere and there are comic books for sale so my collecting comic books at this time is very sporadic it's not until i'm about i guess 12 going on to 13 more i think 12 where i discover that comic books aren't just these occasional books that appear at a drugstore they're there every week and new titles come out every week so I started collecting uh, Fantastic Four seriously around issue 27 or 28, and I believe I have almost the complete run. <laughs> I'm sure I'm missing a dozen issues because of couldn't find them when I went when I went away to grad school up at Syracuse. Uh, That was a hell of a time trying to find anybody who who sold comic books up at Syracuse, New York, believe it or not. Um, So uh, it was tough. Uh, So I'm sure I'm missing a few issues. I started collecting Spider-Man with issue... I'm going to guess around issue 30, 31. I started collecting Spider-Man. And I had a lot of those early issues. Until my mom purged my collection the first time. Um, And that would have been about 1964, 65, somewhere in there. Um, She gave them all to another younger cousin. She figured I wasn't reading them. I'm getting older now. I'm heading into high school. He doesn't read comedies. They call them, my parents call them funny books. He's not reading funny books anymore. Um, And I, I, I was heartbroken. I told my mother, I said, you just gave away... Down the road, mom, you just gave away a complete fortune. And she said, What do you mean? I said, Mom, someday these things are going to be worth money. I said, I don't know what they're going to be worth, but someday they're going to be worth money. And um then I started, you know, seriously collecting and keeping them hidden from her.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you said the first purge, which th- th- does that imply that there were more than one?
2: yeah there, there was a mini purge uh, you know about another year or two down the road where she got rid of a like maybe a dozen or so sergeant fury howling commandos books which i've since replaced um but again i, I sporadically i believe i started collecting sergeant fury almost from issue one uh with limited re, you know with limited funds um that would be my if i was confronted with i could only make one purchase that would be the purchase I would make: would be a Sergeant Fury comic, and um, so. And again, uh, I know I don't have the complete series, but I have quite a few.
1: Is it Sergeant Fury because that is the best of both worlds? It is a war book, although much less of a war book and more of an action book. But it is a Marvel book, so it's got that dynamic art and that big storytelling. It's not the, the DC books were 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 stayed. They were yes, they were
2: absolutely um Tim absolutely they, there was again there was something exciting about uh Sergeant Fury. I think even just the the storylines the the interaction between the different characters, you know um th- there was just some there was something magical about those those comics that that DC just didn't have. Um, and uh, eventually even with DC, Um, As much as I like Hubert and as much as I liked um, uh, Russ Heath, who was primarily, I guess, the artist on uh, Haunted Tank, as I recall, um, those stories just weren't the same as as Marvel's stories. uh, To be honest, as I look at them now, they're probably a little better written. Uh, They're probably more um, adult, if I can put that in quotes, uh, the way they're written and scripted. I think Canagaraj uh, is a is an incredible you know writer, but they didn't have the humor, they didn't have the uh, interpersonal relationships, uh, they didn't have the outlandish villains that uh, were you know were in uh, S- uh, Sergeant Fury. Uh, so you know, and then and then of course the way Marvel you know brought Fury into the future, uh, you know right up to our present day. And the way they even took Baron uh, von Strucker from World War II and brought him up into Cobra, uh, Hydra, you know, it was like there was just an a, something about the, those Marvel comics that struck a chord with me. To like to this day, you know, um, I gravitate to Marvel, uh, and I, I mean, I know I have friends who are big Batman fans. I never got it. Um, I mean, occasionally when Neil Adams was drawing Batman, I collected. But once he stopped drawing Batman, I, you know, don't bother with Batman anymore. I've never been a Superman fan. Um, I would read Superman uh, occasionally, you know, and I'm I've got a, I'm sure I probably have forty or fifty, you know, copies of you know old Spider Man, uh, Spiderman Superman, because um, either. I, there was nothing else to read and I bought them or uh, friends gave them to me or something, but no, I've always been a Marvel fan from day one. So getting back to the connection between how did this make, because I'm anticipating your next question. <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: Um, how did this all lead to what happened in the meeting? Off the top of my head, I just said, why don't we contact Marvel comics to see if they'd be willing to do a an issue of G.I. Joe. And I think the other reason I mentioned that was because I knew Mar- Marvel was always doing licenses.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: They had just done ROM Space Knight for Milton Bradley or with Milton Bradley for their, uh, that electronic robot um, action figure. Um, they had done a uh, uh, word doing maybe. And again, I'm the, the timeline, you know, when you get to my age, I don't know what the timelines are anymore, but I believe they had started doing star Wars Uh, comics. So I knew that they were open to licensing, to doing licensed comics. So, um, Joe Bacall and Tom Griffin set a meeting up with Marvel Comics that week, uh, maybe the next week, but within a couple of days of our meeting. And the next thing you know, um, Joe and Tom are back in our offices, uh, with a jingle, uh, with a storyboard for a commercial. And, um, then the rest is history. I mean, they they uh, had struck some kind of relationship up with uh, Mike, at the time the publisher was Mike Hobson. Um, and uh, they they struck up a, a, a relationship with Mike. And I think what they did was um, they dangled, and I mean, this to me is was the brilliance of what they came up with. <laughs> I mean, they, they took the germ of an idea, let, let's contact Marvel Comics and, and have them do a licensed comic book. Um, they said why don't we in in talking with um mike hobson i think the way they enticed mike to do it
0: was,
2: (laughs) we're going to advertise marvel comics and spend a million dollars a year advertising marvel comics the adventures of gi joe that money uh, against the gi joe title would spin off to kids going and buying other Marvel comic books, and I think Mike recognized that.
0: Yeah, what? a lot of oh, Tim, uh, that th- was
1: you. Uh, that was many of us. Yeah, from, you know, GI Joe is this gateway yeah, yeah. <laughs> to <laughs> yep. to Marvel comics and comics,
2: right? Because you know, I've been one of the things I've been doing over the last. Like, I'll be honest, I don't really, I don't really dig a lot of the comic book writing these days. I love the artwork. I don't really dig the storylines too much. But I've been doing a lot of reading of um, comic book history. And Marvel at the time was, I didn't realize this, the whole comic book industry in the early 1980s was practically going out of business. Uh, Kids were not reading comic books anymore, uh, any longer. And I think what we did was we kind of reinvigorated the the whole area Mm. of buying and reading comic books through those G.I. Joe animated commercials. So what Joe's brilliance and brilliant idea was, is, hey, we don't have $20 million or $30 million to spend on, on a movie, but we can reach those kids with an animated TV commercial that's going to get them excited. And so we, we he developed a 60-second animated TV commercial that we then chopped up To be the lead of the animation for all of our commercials that year in 1982, Um, the jingle that we heard in that room was basically the jingle that has been played played throughout the 80s. It was the same music, the same singers. Oh wow! Uh, I'm sure they tweaked it a little bit once they, you know, once we decided to go into production, because um, that 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 jingle and that uh, those singers were probably brought in or done at a studio after they had already been working on something else. And I think Joe got, got it done as a favor, you know, really seriously, I mean, those were his kind of connections. And um, it just blew us away. I mean, that music blew us away. And um, uh, so we set a meeting up with Steven Hassenfeld, the man who had rejected us twice before. And um, it was a dramatic, a dramatic uh, moment in, in the way we handled it. We, we brought him into our conference room. We were all sitting around the table uh, we dimmed the lights. Uh, Joe Bacall uh, came out from the side room uh, with a book in his hand, a red hardcover book. Didn't have a comic book at the time. He came out with a red hardcover book and he started talking to Stephen. Uh, he said, you know, we don't have $20 million to spend on a, on a movie. We don't have a TV series. But what we're going to do is we're going to spend money On an anime, a fully animated commercial to sell the G.I. Joe the book. He didn't even say a comic book, he called it G.I. Joe the book. And he held up this, you know, red covered book. And then the lights completely went down. And all you heard was the jingle
1: G.I. Joe.
2: And I mean, Stephen was blown away. When the lights came back up, and I I tell this story all the time, when the lights had come back up, Stephen was standing up, he had stood up from the table, and he was leaning against the the wall in the room, completely emotionally drained. And he said, I have to to go visit my father. Now, his father was the former chairman of Hasbro. He said, I have to go visit my father and tell him we're bringing G.I. Joe back. And he just left the room. That was his go-ahead to us. I'm going to visit my father and tell him we're bringing G.I. Joe back. The kicker is his father had died two years earlier. He went to see his father at the cemetery and let his father know. Because G.I. Joe was his father's you know, pro- pet project. I mean, G.I. Joe is what catapulted Hasbro from a tiny little toy company into the second third or fourth largest toy company depending on the year uh and depending on the product line and it was just you know such an emotional emotional meeting that we were just all blown away And that, that's how we knew we had to go ahead he never officially said go ahead and do it so we just moved ahead.
1: Right after that, we didn't let him come back and say no. <laughs>
0: we'll take that as a yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, all right. So, and go, uh, Mark. Go ahead. I
0: was just going to. I was just going to share on the the screen these marker comp studies that you've shared before, uh-huh. uh, Kirk. Yeah. It, was, uh, up, it was the have trick.
2: Them up, have them oh, up cool. here behind me. Yep.
0: Um. And and those those were those were the the studies taken into that meeting. Is that is that no. right? No. no?
2: No, no, those were, those were done after we had made the deal with Marvel. Um, uh, and those were done. Let me think now. So this would have been 81 is when we would have, um, gotten the go ahead. It would have been, uh, March around this time of 81, March, April of 81. takes a year to develop the toy line. Those were probably done about eight or nine months later. When we had been meeting with uh, Marvel, um, uh, Larry Hama uh, started work on fleshing out our characters, file cards, etc. And these covers were done uh, in preparation for one of our first presentations to Toys R Us. So I was asked which one I liked and I chose the one on well, my screen right, the one with the the, the troop, you know, the troops jumping, jumping. off the tank, mm-hmm. um, and that eventually led to the cover that you see on GI Joe One.
0: Yeah, I've got that to, to hand there as well. Um, do you know who the artist was of those uh, those studies? No, I
2: don't. I've been asked that, and I don't know. Um, I don't know if it was Larry. It kind of looks like Larry's like early mm. sketches, but I'm not sure. Um,
1: I, I recall showing these to Larry and asking him and he uh, said they were not him. OK, so they're um, not. OK, but, but it, that that's a that's not a transcript that I can double check. That's a memory of you know, of his sitting me sitting in front of him. Yeah. And again, mm-hmm. I don't
2: know. Maybe it was Herb Drimpy because Herb did the artwork, you know, um, for the cover. Uh, so I don't know. I, honestly, I don't know. I know it wasn't our our ad agency. It was done by Marvel Comics. So okay,
1: okay, okay. Uh, we should we but should yeah, ask, very we should, we should ask Ed Hannigan because Ed Hannigan was doing a bunch of cover sketches hmm. uh, at the time, and and a little bit later, a cover for Marvel. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: maybe... I, I
1: phrase that like we know him. What I so <laughs> someone preferably Mark and I should pose that question to Mister Ed Hannigan. Okay, I'd <laughs> be interested.
0: in yeah, so... Yeah. He did a, he did a lot of those, those, yeah, those sort of early sketch up versions of, of covers as well in the, in the manner that, that Larry did as well. So yeah, if he doesn't, if it wasn't him, he might know. Um, who, who.
2: Yeah. And again, it could have just been, it could have been Marie Severin who knows, you know, she was in that Marvel bullpen doing a lot of uh, background work for them.
1: Anything that came up. I mean, who knows, honestly, I don't know. Um, Kirk, I want to go back a, a half step. Yeah. Um, You were going to newsstands. Did you have a first comic book store? Because comic book stores happened in America starting in the 70s because of changes in distribution. Yeah. And this is one of the things that made comics... Better and more accessible and then later less accessible because they were only in comic book stores and not at every newsstand and drugstore. Did you, in your neighborhood or when you visited someone, did you have a first or a regular comic book store?
2: The the first comic book store that I remember opening in this area uh, probably opened in 1975, 1976. and it was uh, a store near where I was living in, in East Providence. Um, I had just gotten married and um, it was right by my house. So, so I'd stopped there on my way home from work after leaving, you know, uh, work, not, not Hasbro at the time, but after leaving work, I'd stop there and, uh, and check it out. I remember the, and, and I, I remember thinking, wow, this is great. This guy gets all these comics. I don't have to worry about, you know traveling to because it, believe it or not as i started to drive um and and i would travel to two or three different drugstores to because that's how sporadic the distribution of comic books were and if you were collecting certain titles um well uh this drugstore might not have had fantastic four but if you drove three miles away to another drugstore they did have it so i would routinely each week travel three to three or four different Drugstores trying to
1: search out the comics that I knew I was collecting. The so, the modern equivalent of that, of course, is toy you know, Yes. Well, I drove, drove to Target, and there's a Walmart five towns over, and if I get on the highway, there's a Toys R Us. Yeah. I might just ask a friend to ship it from Nebraska.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that was so when this store opened, it was like, wow. I mean, you get everything. So. That's what I'm <laughs> That's when I started collecting from that store, and I even today now I have a, a store about a mile or two away from me that you know has a, you know has been I've been trading with him
0: now for the past almost thirty years. And and I guess GI Joe issue one um, was was a bit of a landmark sort of issue in in some ways in in terms of uh, recognizing that emerging direct market and you know the the comic stores because they there was two versions published with you know one with the the i think a barcode and one with spider-man's faces that right too. <laughs> and and so there's a differentiated you know, slightly differentiated version of the comics being produced in this era era that, that you know people are beginning to notice be, you know going to the direct market or to the newsstand
1: yeah i think uh i mean i think the bigger the bigger shift is um Around that year, when certain publishers and then Marvel and DC start publishing some series that are only for the direct market, mm-hmm. so like jumping ahead a few years, you know, Punisher was newsstand and direct market. Punisher War Journal, which was fifty cents more, was only for. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that true? Uh, Punisher Wars, uh, Excalibur, right? There were some titles that were that were direct market only because, um, either like the newsstand sort of channel couldn't take that many titles or because a book didn't have a broad enough appeal, but for a higher price, it could sell less, but sell enough. Uh, And then in some cases, it was a little spicier. Uh, And there were were publishers, I think like Pacific that were direct market only. Um, And then the other thing that was happening in in the early 80s is that some publishers were starting to um, publish with better paper better color separations and so um maybe sort of sideways the observation here about issue one of gi joe is that it is double sized and not every issue number one is double sized and it's on much better paper than almost every other marvel comic that month and and, and all of the future issues of gi joe and the 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 reason being i
2: believe i'm going to speculate here it was only supposed to be a one shot there was there was no plan for that to be a series. That was supposed to be a one shot, and the initial because of the advertising, the initial takeaway on that comic book. I mean, Marvel was quickly back in the offices, churning out two, three, four. You know, the next thing we know, it's a series. And I was completely stunned when I when I got a letter from uh, you know Mike Hobson telling me that we're moving forward with the GI Joe series. I mean that was that was great you know but
1: so was was the initial contract was the deal for a one shot and it had like a back door to go monthly or was there a second deal for to make this again, a monthly
2: I, again I don't know that I wouldn't have been involved in that right. um Bob might have been uh or or not I mean that might have just been the, something other the Hasbro lawyers were talking to the Marvel lawyers and remember right. th- back then th- everything was a little more friendly, you know, w- every- things weren't as corporate as they are today. Right. Right. So there, there were
1: contracts, but sometimes they were a little slower or Yeah, not, they, not every eye was they, dotted.
2: Yeah, It could have been a phone call that Mike Hobson made to Steve Schwartz, our VP of marketing to say, Hey, you know, this book is selling great. We'd like to do, you know, make it into a six issue series. I'm sure Steve said go go for it and maybe there was never even a contract you know we'll, we'll just rely on what the what you guys uh, promised us from issue 1
1: so in terms of a comparison right so uh the star wars comic had been running for uh, 5 years by now and um you know the first 7 issues of that adapt star wars the movie a new hope and Marvel was doing some movie adaptations. Uh, I don't, I don't offhand know how many were happening. Two thousand
2: and one. Remember, they did two thousand and one. Right,
1: right. Yeah. Um, and then I know there are a bunch that come after GI Joe, like uh, uh, the second Indiana Jones, and Howard the Duck, and uh, Dune, um, and so Marvel. Marvel did publish some, you know, one-off comics. Um, but in terms of Marvel's, uh, sort of tie in books, um, you know, star Wars was a monthly and ROM was a monthly. And, um, so I can see where maybe from the very, this is just a guess, maybe from the very beginning, Marvel said, sure, we'll do a one shot. We're obviously going to think about doing (laughs) a monthly, obviously. Yeah. Um, and you know, we, we can remember that, you know, Herb Trimpey drew issue one, but didn't draw issue two. So in terms of, You know, either it was double sized, and he wasn't. I mean, he was. I'm sure he was. He was fast enough. He could have done issue two had the scheduling worked out. But um, I can, uh, or he was. He was doing uh, six and 7 were going to be published as two and three, right? Is that Mark? Is that the delay because of the? um, yes. Yeah, there uh, was delays because of regard uh... swap. Um, But um, uh, you know, what's the cover price on the first on issues two through? 10 or 20 of G.I. Joe. Issue number one is really expensive. That was that was a commitment. Mm-hmm. Uh that it, was almost as much as a figure.
0: And it it does read as a kind it's self-contained. It's like a almost a one and one and done. Yeah. It's very, it's very self-contained.
2: That, that was the plan. It was to be a one-shot,
0: you know? And and I think Larry sort of said something along the lines of, you know, he threw everything at that issue and then when it found out that there was more was like how am i gonna you know, <laughs> how am i gonna follow that up with it yeah the- <laughs>
1: uh, uh and he managed to because issue two is really good
0: yeah it is oh, yeah yeah so um i'm thinking about sort of the some of those sort of early interactions between marvel and and, and hasbro and how that sort of the two fed fed um into uh, one another i know that you know very famously um uh it was marvel that suggested the idea of cobra um and i was i was telling my my son this 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 story that that um it was it it, one of the editors was it um tim archie
1: goodwin
0: was it archie uh, archie goodwin maybe suggested and uh and i I was telling my my son this this story and he was like no that can't have happened (laughs) was (laughs) Was that his first suggestion or was there like a list of 10 other baddies that he came up with first before they settled on Cobra? To, How to, could hear,
1: you to hear Larry Hama that? tell the story, Archie Goodwin sort of rattled it off and that was the first thing. But um, I, I, the the half of that anecdote that we're skipping that I think Kirk can speak to here is um, uh, you need some bad guys what are they gonna do if there aren't bad guys? And Kirk, I believe you have told me, it's like, no, kids are gonna have G.I. Joe toys fight other toys. Which we thought G.I. Joe would kick Star Wars figures ass. That was our plan.
2: That's how we felt, you know, kids played with <laughs> We see, again, it was a simpler time and, and and nobody in the toy industry felt that you'd that you'd be able to sell two things bad guys and girls.
1: <laughs> you can't
2: do it. Boys are not going to buy the bad guys and they're not going to buy the girls. And so, I mean, that was the old paradigm, right? Well, we're still operating under that old paradigm. We're going to make G.I. Joe figures. They're going to fight everything else in the toy box until we get the word back from Marvel Mm -hmm. and Larry and Archie saying, well, wait a minute. Are they just going to march around and parade? Or who are they going to fight? So they came up with quite literally the, the best evil organization outside of Hydra, and that's Cobra. And no one can tell me that Cobra isn't a branch of Hydra. <laughs> I know <laughs> is. We we and,
1: are we're we're so we're so sort of submerged in this story mode of good versus evil. Star Wars Ninja Turtles, um, Transformers Robocop, you know, like Pirates of the Caribbean um there are all these movies there are all these toy lines there are all these franchises and it it feels very foreign and strange to imagine a version of gi joe um but you know i think about toy lines that don't have a good versus evil storyline you know um matchbox and hot wheels and um uh army army gear remember the uh, I mean- ent- uh there was the, these like guns that folded into, yeah. folded Transforming into
2: play sets with. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. And there was, there was no story. The characters didn't have names and there were no, there were no like bad guy guns that turned into bad guy bases. And, um, I didn't even remember what they were, but it was, it was the size of a deck of cards. It was black plastic and there were maybe five or six of them. in it was a little activity kit. And mine had like a little car and, um, you could like click it in and push the button and it shoot it out. But the same black sort of deck of cards size, my brother, he got the other one and it had a little helicopter with a zip strip, but you could fit all the pieces into this little base, this little template, and it could slide into your pocket. And there were no characters, there were no men or women, there were no stories, there were no names, there were no bad guys. And so, um, and, and of course, right in 1960, For gi joe had no bad guys so if Mm. we're trying to imagine this world without cobra this like what was hasbro thinking um uh it's crazy to think now and and it it was crazy for marvel that's crazy don't do that but not crazy for hasbro to think that way in
0: 1981 right so and so so uh you at the, at the point at which um, Marvel says, "You know who's the bad guys?" How far have how how far you got in the development of the actual toys? Oh, were we the
2: were, yeah, We were way down <laughs> the road.
0: <laughs> you know, uh, uh, yeah. So so you pretty much got the entire first line sort yeah. of design I mean, spec'd that's out. Why,
2: that's why the the Cobra Officer and the Cobra Trooper are pretty much the same figure except for decoration, <laughs> because we were way down. We were way down the line. In fact, we couldn't even get Cobra Commander out in time. We had to make Cobra Commander a mail-in, which was great as great great accident of fate. We had to make Cobra Commander a mail-in uh, uh, premium because, you know, he was getting developed way down the road. Um, so yeah, we had to crash Cobra into the line.
0: So you were able. To g- I'm not mistaken, just- the
2: first. If I'm not mistaken, I believe the first one or two shipments of G.I. Joe figures that came into the States didn't even have any enemy troopers in them. We then had to, you know, make an adjustment to the character weightings for uh, shipments three and on. So... It. Yeah. It's and also
1: it's also worth, like, comparing G.I. Joe to Star Wars here because, um, you know, in comics, we might think, like, well, what's the Marvel comparison... Um, but sort of in like larger culture and in toys in 1982 the comparison is Star Wars because they're the same size although GI Joe is superior in every way um, but um, you have this story you have this you have good and evil you have vehicles um, you know the, the packaging is like relatively similar It's not like in Japan where you have a little character in a small box and um, and I and I can imagine that, both at Hasbro, I, I also know that both at Hasbro and at um, Griffin Bacall, um, oftentimes someone was thinking sort of, can we make this more like Star Wars or can we make this less like Star Wars? Um, because Star Wars, you know, if you sort of it's like, the comparison is if you took um, like your top 10 brands right now and made mush them into one, like that's what Star Wars was in terms of the like slicing the pie. Star Wars was almost everything in mm-hmm. the late 70s and early 80s. And so, you know, when I look at uh, Cobra, a soldier, an officer, and I squint, I sort of I see the stone the stormtrooper. And you know, when you see Cobra Commander, I see, say, Darth Vader. I, I know that's not a, a perfect comparison because Cobra Commander doesn't use a sword. But in terms of sort of a character waiting and how much time is there to come up with some bad guys. I can imagine a conversation happening at Hasbro. It's like uh, basic soldiers, right? Something, something simpler. And it, you know, you're not going to get a destro or a scrap iron when you're in a rush.
2: Right. No, exactly right. And, 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 you know, the, we only had again, Hasbro was so small at the time. We had one guy designing all the figures, Ron Rudak. And, and that was it. He was it.
0: And against and, that squeeze, you've Ron somehow designed the perfect logo in terms of the, the, right. <laughs> the Cobra logo. How <laughs> exactly? How does that happen? Right. And,
1: and, and the, 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 the company, when you um, a comparison here that I that I make is uh, Walt Disney Productions in the 30s before Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is released and after before. Okay. Um, You know the animators uh had access to walt disney everyone had access to walt disney yeah and and you know the studio was good but it wasn't amazing as a physical space and and that first feature film that the company made made so much money that disney had designed and built this brand new animation studio building and um now everyone, all the different departments were on different floors, and Walt was on the top floor and you didn't have access to him. And uh, you know, is the work better when you're sort of sort of you're the underdog and you're like crammed in? Right, so that's an
2: interesting I, point. I
1: too. think a lot of the magic yeah. of not to say that there's less magic um in in the middle and eight, later eighties at, at, at Hasbro with G.I. Joe, but a particular magic the first year or two or three is um sort of the underdog and some desperation and not a lot of room and um, uh, tools or, or funding. Yeah, no, you're right. that's a great, excellent point.
2: excellent analogy between Disney and us at, at the time. well how success can you know change your company and and certainly I mean you know we got better as we got more successful. Um, but we also started to miss a little bit of the magic as well. That early first couple of years was pure magic, and we caught magic in a bottle. I I like to say.
0: For sure, and um, I was just follow up on something you said earlier. You said that you know a couple of things about boys and their their uh, habits, and and uh, sort of ties into a question that we got from from one of the the viewers, uh, Rachel, who's watching on Facebook. Um, she, uh, she says uh, was the girls don't sell mentality already in place and if so how did scarlet make it into the line into that original um lineup purely by accident <laughs>
2: <laughs> when when um when Buchan made the proposal for um the comic book and to do the comic book animation um i think in the back of their mind was we're going to develop a TV series. In order for a TV series to be successful, it has to have appeal to both boys and girls. So when you put the series on TV, and again, we're talking 40 years ago, okay? I'm not saying this is the mentality today, okay? But 40 years ago, a little girl would watch a TV series with her brother if there was a girl in it. It didn't matter to a little boy. If, if there was a boy in a little girl in a show directed at girls, that boy would never watch that TV series, okay? But the opposite is true for a little girl. They would sit with their brother and watch it. So Scarlett was... um I'm not going to say it was the brainchild of uh, Joe Bacall. I believe Scarlett was the brainchild of Ron um, because Ron loved to draw pinups. And um, uh, she was, Scarlett was was a uh, a way of him having an opportunity to draw pinups and and sneak a female into the line. And I think we all fell in love with Scarlett. Um but we said we're never going to make her <laughs> uh, until until uh, we were kind of convinced the logic that Joe Bacall and Tom uh, Griffin talked to us about that if we ever move forward and this does become a TV series we're going to need a girl in the quote in the, a girl quotes in the line mm-hmm. um, and so Scarlet was there from the very beginning um, but she was weighted two pieces per. 24 pack
0: oh what?
2: yeah two pieces i had a discussion on facebook on this uh, the other day um uh she was you know while other characters were weighted six and eight um scarlet was two and even weighted at two she was still a peg warmer in those early days now Mm -hmm. why is scarlet so popular today because we've all grown up right we've all (laughs) grown up and we've got money to spend, but if you're an eight or nine or 10 year old boy, the last figure you're going to buy is a girl. I'm sorry. That's, you know,
1: that's a fact of life, Tim. Uh, You know, uh, when (laughs) He-Man was on, I watched He-Man and when She-Ra was on, I, you know, and Bo was there and He-Man showed up once or twice. I did not watch it. Also, you know, that show was boring and I was now a year older. Uh, And then similarly, you know, my brother and I, uh, we did have Scarlet, but we sort of didn't know how to play with that figure. Yeah. I
2: mean, I mean, it's so, but today she's part of the line. Um, older collectors want her as part of the line to complete the line. Um, when you look at, uh, the newer versions of her, I mean the, the, I mean the sculpt. I look at, I look at the sculpting that we got away with in 82, 83, even into the nineties, and I say to myself, how did we ever get <laughs> away with some of these? These this sculpting and these details sucks,
0: you know. She was she was prettier in the comic for sure. Oh, no, <laughs> on the plastic. But uh, but yeah, it's um, so the now value. That offended, the... Now
2: that I've offended half the audience, you know.
0: Some of the, <laughs> some of the, we got, go for it. I was going to say, we got a comment there from, from Kyle. As a kid, my sisters read my GI Joe comics because of Scarlet and still have a love for Scarlet, Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow today. So yeah, I think. I oh think yeah. Right. I mean, and
2: and, I and, then, and that was the brilliance too, but how Larry created the love triangle right in the comic book. Mm-hmm. So you've got Scarlet, Duke and Snake Eyes and that, again goes back to my love of Marvel comics is that kind of relationship you never would have found in DC but you find that in a, in in a Marvel comic you find that kind of uh love triangle going on all the time whether it's you know Spider-Man and Mary Jane Watson and Gwen Stacy you know it's it's part of the realism of of the their comics
1: some of the um, nudging or urging about adding a female character to the line would have definitely come from Marvel as well, because if Hasbro had said, "Here are the nine men," or it, like "Here are the thirteen men that make up this book," Marvel would have and certainly did say, "Like, well, there has to be a woman in here because we don't the same th- the same thing about TV like we don't we don't publish teen books that are just men and." I'm certain that if somehow Hasbro had pushed back and said, "No, no, 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 maybe we can revisit it for year two. No women in this toy line. I'm certain that in that first year, the comic would have invented a woman anyway. For the oh yeah, you know, I think you're right, Tim. But but the thing is, we had her. I mean, yeah, Ron yeah.
2: Rudat had created her, and yeah. she was there from the very beginning. We didn't have to, we didn't have to rush her into tooling or anything. She was there. We just knew we weren't gonna. She was not going to be as popular as any of the other guys. Um, but uh, did,
1: this, did this change at all over the years? because um, you know every year or so, um, another female figure and then some villain female figures, um, did, did the did the waiting start to change? Did the toy selling success of female figures start to change by 87, 88 you know, jinx. No, no, okay. No. <laughs>
2: they were always they were always. If we could have gotten away with weighting them as one, we probably would have. But Alan Hassenfeld wouldn't let us because it screws up your factory So, in in, the, in terms of how they manufacture. So no one could ever explain that logic to me. But he, he would insist that we could never have a onesie figure in any box. So we always had to pack the any character that we thought would not sell. And, and it wasn't just females. There were other male characters that just didn't have the same you know, zip or pizzazz or dynamism. Um, we packed them less. Okay. Maybe as we moved along later in the early like the late 80s, maybe maybe Jinx might have been packed three, you know. Um, maybe like for instance, CoverGirl. Um, when we went and again, I think the the reason for doing the females was Ron liked to draw females. And he'd come up with, you know, some great looking female that would capture our attention. And we'd say, yeah, that looks great. Now, the translation into plastic was never the same, but the illustrations were always cool. But Cover Girl was uh, never part of the figure line. She was sold with a vehicle. Um, the Baroness, uh, you know, I think the Baroness, we might have waited her a little more but again maybe three i can't see us going more than four pieces and that was just because she had become such an integral part of the storyline that all of a sudden we started waiting her more and i think the second or third versions of scarlet we might have waited a little more because she had become such an integral part of the storyline but um early on you know the, the the you were you were the toy line was appealing to 8 9 and 10 year old boys and that's who was buying our product and
0: that's can I touch know. on could I touch on the the sort of the about the the baroness and the origins of the the baroness um so so I don't know if I I sort of have got this story slightly back to front but um I I believe that I've heard that Larry wanted to invent a a female Cobra character to have in, in issue one of the the book and specifically to have a character without a mask because most, you know, all of the other Cobra characters uh, have got the masks on. So it's harder to see their expressions and, and, and uh, their emotions and things. So right. I think that the Baroness came about as a sort of a Larry Hammer um, originated idea for, for issue one, which then eventually saw its way into the, to the toy line is, is that, a right understanding as far as you can remember because what i i'll share something on screen as well what i noticed or here we go is that in the early issues you sort of you could, could look at the small print at the very front of the of the book and you could see yeah. um all of the names of like the copy the 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 characters that have uh, official toys to come uh, because they're in those Uh, capital letters uh, attached to them and all of the secondary characters that were just made up for the comic book typically would well they wouldn't have that like the likes of Quinn and Dr. Venom and and so on and so this is from uh, an early issue that Baroness uh, featured in and she's not down there and it was only later on in uh, that is issue 16 um, uh, from uh, October 1983 uh, I've got that wrong on that slide um that that we first see her in the in that small prince mm-hmm. um yeah so I wondered if you had any recollections on that my, so only, recollection some... was, uh,
2: my, my only recollection is that um uh, Ron would have created the Baroness uh and not Larry um and and I'll I'll explain a simple reason why because um there was some kind of crazy, you know, going back to contracts, um, there was some kind of crazy payment, royalty payments that we would have had to make to Marvel if we created any of the toys that they created for the comic books. And, um, that's why you never saw Quinn, the October guard as toys. They were created by Larry. Um, and while I fought to try and have them included as part of the toy line, our lawyers just wouldn't let us do it because they didn't know how to break out the royalty payments. Now I'm sure if somebody took the time, we could have figured that out. But we were running, you know, 120 miles an hour, at <laughs> time, and nobody took the time to do it, and least of all me. I just didn't have the time to get involved in that kind of stuff. But that's why I'm saying the Baroness had to have been. Uh, a, a, a pure and total creation by, by, uh, by Ron.
0: Right. And, and also,
1: there's an analogy here. Um, uh, Mattel made He-Man and licensed the characters to Filmation to make the animation. Filmation invented Orko and there was an Orko toy and Mattel had to pay Filmation to make the Orko toy. Right. Right. And,
0: and i guess, I guess as is well, where we think about larry as primarily the the comic writer and that you know he's um i think it's easy to to fall into the trap of thinking that he's at the end of the chain the toys are given to him he has to do something with them but but his role i guess was more you know complicated and nuanced than 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 that 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 he also freelanced for hasbro directly so so it might be that there was uh, the, the Hasbro connection, there was some discussions with maybe with, yeah, with Larry, Larry about that, that.
2: Yeah. Larry, Larry was brought in, um, each year, like at the very beginning of the line. Um, he was not an afterthought. Um, La- you know, starting with year two, year one, obviously, you know, we, we charged the head on our own, but, but starting with year two, um, uh, Larry was brought in, into one of our very first, uh, line presentations, where we would, you know, show him all the character sketches, all the vehicles. Uh, we'd lay out for him when the vehicles would be introduced throughout the year. Uh, so, you know, whatever the 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 Snowcat is going to be introduced in uh, April. Uh, so Larry made sure he had a calendar. I mean, the guy was brilliant. Um, he had a, he had a way of weaving these characters and vehicles into the next year's storylines so that they would almost match, if not exactly match. When the toy would be on the shelf, so you'd be reading the mm-hmm. comic book, and you'd be rushing to the store because uh, that vehicle that's in that highlighted in that issue of the comic book would be on the store shelf. Um, that's how closely we worked with Larry. Um, uh, you know, he and Ron developed a relationship where you know Ron would supply him with sketches early on of hey, here's who how, who we're thinking of including in the line. Larry would start writing the profiles on each of those characters. So it was a real, you know, hand in glove kind of relationship,
0: and and that's triggering a thought as as well. That sort of when the characters were initially, uh, come up with those that that initial line. At what points did they they actually did were they given the the names as well? Because like Snake Eyes, I think on, even on the card, you know, the big bold is says Commando, right? Commando, yeah. Um. So 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 at what point did they move from being primarily a specialist specialization as their as their character to to being uh a name
2: as soon as larry fed us uh the dossiers on each character and they would have he would usually give us two or three names um sometimes it would only be one because hey that that's the name uh other times it maybe be two or three alternate names uh, I think Snake Eyes was always Snake Eyes. I don't remember any alternate name for Snake Eyes. I might be wrong, but I don't remember any alternate name.
1: Plus, but, a little time to clear legal. Yeah, yeah, but that, and
2: that, but that, you're right, but that didn't usually take too long. Maybe two weeks. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it would take about two weeks to get those names cleared.
1: Um, I- uh, do you have more comics questions? Because I have a, I have a toy, I have a larger toy marketing question, Mark.
0: Uh, I'll, I've got, I think we touched on it in the sort of the way that Larry would, would tie sort of the release of particular figures into the comics. And this was, this was one that I've had a sort of a query about before the, uh, we had the, the dreadnoks, and, and they came out, um, they had like the, the old fashioned swivel necks, but they came out in that first wave with, uh, the, the, the bull neck jointed figures, um, so, so I was wondering if there was a delay, and and in particular, I was thinking about the way that they appeared in the comics. Was that they they had these three uh, covers sort of in quite quick succession, um, with this scene of the uh, of the dreadnoks um, attacking an airfield, which was the which was reflected in the in the TV advert. So I wondered, um, is that all connected? Did though did the Dreadnoughts get delayed, and did that mean that then the, the advert was sort of moved back uh, and meant that they, the, the comic kept on, um, featuring the same scene so that it could uh, link to the, to the commercial.
2: Yeah. I I don't know that I can give you an actual answer because I wasn't working on Joe at the, at this time directly. Um, but, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the dreadnoughts were a creation of Griffin Bacall. Oh, right and um we didn't have any licensing problems with whatever griffin bacall came up with and we you know that that was just that was the kind of relationship we had with the, our ad agency um so i believe the dreadnoughts uh, were part of uh were the creation of griffin bacall um or sunbow call it sunbow which was you know their animation division um so i guess that's why uh they were included in the line i don't remember us meaning ron coming up with the idea of doing these mad max type characters i think it was a function of griffin bacall um as far as uh, the
0: timing honestly i don't know okay that's uh, that's right um tim do you, oh uh, yeah tim do you want to move on to to your question
1: yeah, so this is this is shifting gears uh, away from comics and back to Hasbro. So, so Kirk, the line gets more and more popular. Year two, year three, year four, year five, and 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 I know that Hasbro expanded uh, more more toy lines, bigger toy lines, more extensions of each toy line, and in terms of R and D, research and design if you need to make more toys, you can hire more sculptors, more designers. Um, I don't have a good sense of how marketing, how the marketing department where you were, how that expands. And part of why I'm asking is that um, like when, when you and I have spoken before, mm-hmm. I have a sense of what you did in your position as you sort of got promoted. Uh, you know, you, you'd have meetings with, uh marvel you'd have presentations at the toy company you'd go to toy fair um, but on facebook you have posted um, a photo or two of some of the marketing team the people who worked under you and these are not faces and names that i'm uh familiar with and you have said nice things like you know to the best marketing team there ever was mm-hmm. and, it, and it occurred to me like and if marvel wants to expand hire more writers and artists to publish more comics how how does hasbro in the 80s expand its marketing department and what does that actually mean what do new people what do they what do they do <laughs> like your your team
2: i i, I started thinking about this uh, after i saw your email this morning you know that you mm. wanted to ask me about this so i started i sketched out from just i've never done this before i sketched out to the best of my recollection uh who worked on the in the marketing department the boys toys marketing department and at most we only had well take take bob rupus who was the vp who i would eventually become um at the most, we had six people working on all the Judge, all the Boys Toys brands that Hasbro did. Um, to give you a sense, the 1982, 83, 84, and 85 line was developed by Bob and me uh, in terms of marketing. That was it. And not only did I do the quote marketing, but I was the liaison with Marvel Comics. I did all the licensing. I worked on reading all the every single monthly comic book, every single episode of the uh, animated, the first two animated series uh, had to go through me to be read and approved. Um, in 85 and 86, the the department expanded. I was no longer in the department. I was working in Hasbro direct marketing, uh, running it, but it expanded by adding um, three three senior product managers, each having one product associate product manager working under them, so that's six people, and it stayed pretty much six people for the rest of my career there until 1996. That's how uh, small a department the marketing department was, um, and I like to think that you know I had a I had a, uh, a sign hanging up, a poster hanging up in my office, and I I don't want to misquote it. Um, So I just looked it up and I had this sign that a poster that hung up, hung up in my office. It's attributed to the French Foreign Legion. I don't know how true it is, but it's attributed to the French Foreign Legion and says, we, the unwilling led by the unknowing, are doing the impossible for the ungrateful. We have done so much for so long with so little. We are now qualified to do anything with nothing forever. (laughs) <laughs> well, that, that, that hung in my office throughout my career at Hasbro, because we were constantly, um, while other departments were growing, we were constantly being asked to do more with less, and in a way that was good, uh, because I hated to, ha- I hated to ever have to sem- uh, let somebody go. Uh, and once you start overexpanding and then you hit a rough, uh, patch, uh, you gotta let people go. And I always considered the people who worked with me to be colleagues and to be, um, uh, uh, call them friends. I mean, they were friends, you know, you know, and, and it would be tough to have let any of them go. And eventually I had to, but, um, when we were reorganized, but, uh, uh, we did run
0: lean. The marketing department ran lean and mean. Yeah, it's incredible the amount of things achieved in that period and the the polish to to, to that, w- that was achieved. Um it kind of somewhat boggles the mind that it ever happened at all, to be honest.
1: <laughs> so to um all right, to, so to put a point on that, uh the first couple of years are you and Bob Prupis. And then marketing boys' toys, boys' toys marketing expands to three plus three people, six people. Yep. And the GI Joe lines getting bigger, and there's Transformers, and there's there are, there are more lines. And so these other people are they're the ones reading scripts from Marvel, from uh, New York or Los Angeles, uh, both for. G.I. Joe, and also Transformers, and there were three Air Raiders episodes, right, that were written but never animated, uh, and Visionaries. Um, and so the, the years that you were at um, Hasbro Direct, uh, you still went to Toy Fair? Oh, yeah. Okay, but you you were less involved in, you were not doing the marketing. So those six people would have gone to Toy Fair and they would have had meetings with the ad agency they would have had meetings with marvel um were they so i understand how how the sales department like a salesperson has a a geographic region you know these couple of states Mm -hmm. uh and so they're traveling to go to uh headquarters of bigger toy chains and then somehow to connect to the smaller mom and pop shops and to say like you should order our toys at wholesale you should carry these at retail. So um, what are some other things that we might not be thinking of that that the marketing team is doing for boys toys besides the stuff that we sort of remember most easily besides you know uh, toy fair episode scripts, comic book scripts are are they traveling?
2: Oh yeah you're train you're, first of all you're, you're, you're visiting customers. With the Salesforce, okay. They
1: on those trips, okay.
2: Yep, you're um, uh, going on commercial shoots, so that you're there to approve whatever shots are going to be, be done. Uh, you you do that in a pre-pro, but pre-production meeting. But uh, occasionally, when you get on set, things change, so you got to be there to make sure that whatever the the, the uh, director is going to shoot matches what you believe the toy is going to do. Uh, so you have to be there for approval. Um, and uh, on top of that, you're working with R&D to develop the line. The, that To finish developing the current line, but to also be working on future lines. And, um, you know, when, when I say these six people, they weren't all working on G.I. Joe. Two of them were exclusively Transformers. So that left four people working on G.I. Joe and every other boy's toy concept. So when I got back into Boy's Toys in '88, '89, um, you know, we were we had a, a Joe line that was cooking. Um, we had WWF, now WWE wrestlers, we had visionaries inhumanoids, aerators, um, cops. I mean, these are just some, not all at the same time, but these were all brands that I was working on you know with my my team um to name the ones that actually hit the marketplace that's not to mention there are brands we worked on that never got past our first presentation to Toys R Us so they were killed but that didn't mean you didn't spend 4 or 5 months working on putting together a line that then had to be presented and developed and costed and etc. So yeah, it was a was very intensive, a lot of work. Um, But when you loved what you were doing, you didn't consider it work. I mean, I I went to work every day, um, never feeling I was going to work. You know, how many people can say that, you know, for me, going to work, going to Hasbro every day was 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 a joy. It was like, I'm going to have fun. And a lot of times i'd get beat up but you know hey that one <laughs> that one with the territory
1: mark do you have a question i,
0: I was just going to say talk, talking to that kind of expansion of the the boys toy toy line when when i was sort of doing the, the research for this um it was interesting to hear kind of how you attributed that kind of that success in, in 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 hasbro and that growth um from from gi joe from from the platform of the first year to what it could then do in terms of investing and, and sort of looking to, to expand the, the market and specifically what made me me laugh because of the sort of the, the friendly rivalry between between the brands um, was it it, se- it seemed to be that you suggested that without G.I. Joe being the success it was in that first year, there wouldn't have been a Transformers uh, at Hasbro.
2: There wouldn't have been anything. I'll, I'll be that bold. I mm-hmm. mean, there wouldn't have been anything uh, without the success of G.I. Joe. First of all, when i started work at the company i left a, a very um uh boring job i was an advertising manager for a plumbing and heating supply manufacturer okay um my boss who was you know a, a great guy you know, hired me um we became close friends um i'd been there two years and i applied for a job at hasbro because hey this how do you turn down an opportunity to go to work for a toy company, right? Especially since they were, when I got out of graduate school in advertising, there were, if I wasn't going to go to work for an ad agency, there were only two companies in the world I wanted to work for. One was Hasbro and the other was Black & Decker Tools. So, <laughs> you know, so when I had an opportunity to leave and go to Hasbro, it was an, an incredible opportunity. My boss at the time told me, you realize That they're a $75 million company with $80 million, uh, with $3 million or $4 million in debt. You're going to a company that will be out of business in less than a year. And I said, oh, I got to give it a shot. So when we introduced G.I. Joe in 82, Hasbro had done $78 million the year before. G.I. Joe did $52 million in 1982. Okay. All of a sudden we were hot again. By 1985, Stephen Hassenfeld was leveraging the success of, of uh, G.I. Joe to purchase a much larger toy company, Milton Bradley. Okay. And that was based on the success of Joe and Transformers. The only reason we got Transformers was because Henry Ornstein, who was repping Takara at the time in the and the Transformers brand, took a look at the success of Hasbro in boys' toys. Had, had we had come out of, out of nowhere to have the kind of success we had, that he we were the first company he came to to show the Transformer line to. And Bob Rupeus was the one who jumped all over it, because for Bob it was no guts, no glory, and <laughs> and literally he lived by that motto. And uh, and that's what what sent us into the stratosphere. So if if I were if I were writing the ha- the history of Hasbro, okay, the, the 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 brand that rescued Hasbro from obscurity in 1964 was GI Joe, and the rest the, the 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 brand that rescued Hasbro from bankruptcy in 1982 was GI Joe, and the brand that catapulted Hasbro into the dominant player it is today in the toy business was G.I. Joe So,
1: I like that sentence Um, (laughs) we've been been mentioning Transformers a lot with these last two questions Um, I remember in um, the fall of 2000 um, someone showed up on eBay with a whole bunch of Hasbro prototypes and mock-ups and one of them and I did not save the photo at the time. Was mm-hmm. for um, it was it was like an SUV, maybe sort of half tank SUV, and it was called. And this was this was just a a gray model or a wood model. It wasn't yeah. wasn't color. I don't know how much it, it did, um, but it was called the Cross brand, and it was a proposed Hasbro internal GI Joe and Transformer toy. Uh, and as I remember, it, it would have been a vehicle for Joes or I guess Cobras, but it also would have transformed into a robot. And, um, you know, there's, there's talk, you know, in this decade of um, should the G.I. Joe movie franchise somehow connect to or launch from the bigger Transformers movie franchise? Why is this a good idea? Why is this a bad idea? And um, just a f- just a week ago, there was sort of finally an official, not like Comic-Con exclusive, but like an actual Hasbro G.I. Joe Transformers crossover toy. It's a Hiss tank that changes into Megatron, right, Mark? Yeah. With okay. Baroness so, is the pilot. Thank you. So um, Kirk, do you remember talk in the 80s or early 90s? And if so, sort of how often and what was it of somehow as a one-off or merging these, these these brands as a toy yeah we um not
2: not the first few years of transformers um but i would guess from about 89 90 uh when i came back on to boys toys as the head of boys toys um i was constantly not just me i shouldn't say me we were constantly trying to uh push the idea of a linkage between transformers and gi joe um again my comic book uh history said hey why does it make sense for crossovers in comic books because you got fans of fantastic four and you got fans of spider-man and why don't they cross over and have an uh, a comic book episode together right uh you got fans of uh uh Avengers and fans of um uh fantastic Four why don't they cross over and and Marvel would do that right Marvel Marvel was constantly teaming up their characters um so we would always ask for some kind of a team up and it was always met by with resistance by our senior management team who always the the excuse was always don't mix metaphors I mean that that, that was the that was the constant excuse. Don't mix metaphors. So, you know, if you can't get your boss to agree, then you, you just say, okay, you fight it the best you can. And then you just say, you know, he's a blockhead and you
1: move on to do something else. So you're remembering a request or, or a suggestion. Almost which, every year, Tim. Would, Almost every you, year. Do you remember artwork or something more than like a piece of paper, words on paper?
2: Uh, Honestly, I don't remember. I mean, it was, we would have these early preliminary meetings, uh, brainstorming meetings where we would discuss these kind of things. I'm sure there's artwork of, you know, early on of, I mean, the the way Transformers was developed, Transformers was developed primarily by the designers at Takara. Right. We had very little input other than color studies and possibly themes. So we'd say to them, uh, you know, Hey, it would be great to have a construction vehicle that could transform and they'd come up with you know a line of construction vehicles that would transform um i'm sure that there were you know requests by our team the joe team to have uh military vehicles that would transform and there certainly are enough military vehicles in the transformers line they were never scaled to accommodate a three and three quarter inch figure because senior management wouldn't give it the go-ahead.
1: So um, I'm remembering, I think I'm remembering from that fall 2000 eBay listing, I think the person who was selling it had a little sort of inside skinny. And um, as I recall, someone along the way has said that um, at Hasbro, there was a concern that a transformer not be depicted as having uh, a human driver or pilot sort of at the toy level that no, these are autonomous characters. They drive themselves. They fly right. themselves. So right. to, to mix that metaphor, to have a Joe or a Cobra or spike or spark plug, um, you know, inside Alpinus prime or inside Starscream, uh, ruins it or breaks it. Um, and uh, I'm thinking about sort of the, the corporate, thinking of not mixing these metaphors and how it seems so unbelievable to us in today's context. Um, Like, yes, in Spider-Man's second appearance in comic books, the Fantastic Four shows up and they're on the cover, right? So Marvel was not shy about this, like building this linked universe. But, um, uh, you know, when when the Marvel Cinematic Universe started, uh, you know 2008 2009 all it would have taken was for one of those movies to underperform and this would have this would have never happened All these characters showing up in these movies that are cliffhangers for other movies um, and I, I think back to, uh, 10 or 15 years ago when every month I'd write a check to My gas company and my electric company for my utility bills and then one day they announced that they were um, crossing mer- over <laughs> they, they were merging and I thought, uh, well, good. Sooner or later, I can write one check and mail it in one envelope with one stamp, not two checks. And uh, before they announced that you could, I just started doing it, writing one check and mailing it to one PO box or the other. PO boxes were in the same city, and um, and you know, for their purposes, that was about computer systems and billing and account numbers, and you know, they had not integrated yet. So. Um, and actually, I think, I think I might agree with um, your former bosses, uh, Kirk, even though sort of in the comic books and, you know, one time as a cute aside in the Transformers cartoon, um, these characters do meet and they have some sort of what-if adventures. Uh, I, think, I think I like Transformers and G.I. Joe to be pretty mm-hmm. separate, particularly when uh, I remind myself that Transformers are aliens, from another planet. And I don't really want the Joes, you know, they can go into space sometimes, but I sort of want them to fight specialized bats or, (laughs) you know, the star Viper or the Astro Viper. I don't really want the Joes fighting any kind of aliens, whether they look like star Wars aliens or 30 foot tall uh, mechanized aliens. Tim,
2: I didn't realize you were such a rule follower. Uh, (laughs) uh, We keep him in his bones. We're at Hasbro. We used
1: to call this, you got too much religion. <laughs> um, this this idea of having uh, GI Joe fight other toys, uh, my brother and I did not and could not have sort of any of our toys meet any of our other toys. We did not. <laughs> to, you know, to use to use a Ghostbusters analogy, we did not yeah. uh, cross streams. And, and you it, know, even where it might make sense, we didn't build Lego bases for our action figures.
2: And you're right. I you know I played the exact same way. <laughs> mm. I played the exact same way i had i had bags of green army men and i had bags of no offense mark but i had bags of revolutionary war soldiers okay red and blue revolutionary war soldiers green army men when i wanted to play i only played with the green army men played against the gray army men and the (laughs) red army men played against the blue army men they
1: never mixed (laughs) that was just me <laughs> uh His, mark mark well, you've got mark you've got kids how do your kids play with their toys mixing stuff
0: um, up, yeah mixing stuff up i mean, I, mean I think particularly with the modern toys they're getting closer together so you've got like Marge, marvel legends at six inches and the gi joe classified at six inches even the even the modern gi joes and the modern star wars figures are now much similar with the articulation that they're you know they're not too too far away from having the same basic model to them so so it's less jarring i think but but yeah for the most part just chuck it, chuck them all in the same uh, Yeah, and i
2: remember i remember, uh, I remember my son playing like that too like he'd take his ninja turtle he'd never play his gi joes with ninja turtles but he'd take his ninja turtles and he would play against masters masters of the universe with his but maybe that was the sense of scale.
0: It's the the size and yeah. the sort of the shape of them, sort yeah. of kind of muscular. Yeah, I think some
2: kids it doesn't matter, but I think other kids there's a certain religion to how you play with these. <laughs> <toys>. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: I'd I'd get in my playmobile kind of uh, toys in with my GI Joes, particularly like the they they've got had a cool saloon which could be used as like the Dreadnought kind of hangout
1: and uh, <laughs> That's that cool. kind of
0: thing. Uh, so but most mostly it was G.I. Joe together, but but particularly on the some of those little supporting elements that didn't exist as G.I. Joe toys. Um, that, that's where it would come into play, particularly. Uh interesting question while we're talking about Transformers. Um, so Kyle asks, was there ever reversed influence from Takara where it might have influenced anything in the G.I. Joe world?
2: Yeah, you know, that was, that's a great question. Um, and I can't think of anything that that was ever done. Uh, but Takara was always, you know, like they would come to visit us two or three times a year. Oh. Um, and we'd send those designers over there. Um, and Takara was always coming up with ideas for G.I. Joe. Um, but we never really did any of them. And, and, and I don't know why. I think not that they weren't great ideas, I think they were just way too expensive. Uh, their idea of uh, play or toy was just ended up being way too expensive that we never ended up doing anything with them. But they, they, And I can't recall any specific, you know, like if you ask me, well, can you think of a specific thing that they might have come up with? I can't think of anything specific. I just know that they'd always try and show us some ideas. And in fact, um, they would actually, you know, come with uh, uh, either a jet or a tank that would uh, be driven by a GI Joe. So they were on board trying to integrate uh, both lines together, but we just couldn't seem to make it work with our senior
0: management team. And you, I was going to say, you went you went over to Japan for the Crossfire project. That that would I I don't know what the what the connection was to to Japan for that
2: well at the time the best rc vehicles were coming out of nico in japan uh-huh. and um and so we we saw we saw a trend in the united states with Tyco toys developing you know rc vehicles year after year that just continually outdid each other that we said mm. why are, why are we not doing an rc jeep for gi joe so greg with the lead designer Greg Bernston and I uh, took off for Japan and spent two weeks in Japan working with um, the design teams at Nico to come up with the, the Crossfire. And literally, you know, we'd show up in their offices, Greg with a sketch pad and me sitting next to him and approving what he was drawing and asking at the same time the engineers from Nico, can this be done? And we literally you know, design that vehicle in under two weeks uh, from start to finish. Was it
1: a success?
2: The Crossfire? Yeah. I mean, it, it was, it was a, 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 you know, very much a success. Um, you know, I remember the TV commercial for it. I mean, that, that was, that was probably the, the start of um, my, when I came back full time to head up Boys Toys, that was my the start of my insistence that every toy we make uh be a toy first uh into what I coined the term toy eyes the line that every everything from figures to vehicles had to have a toy feature that no longer was posability enough of a feature the figures had to do things the vehicles all had to do things we we're not going to make snap together model kits anymore and I think the inspiration for that was this this particular toy right here.
1: If if it was a success, uh, why not do it again? Why not do something bigger the next year?
2: Because the fad of RC vehicles faded pretty quickly, and it was time to just move on to something else. Because that was not a cheap toy. I mean, if I forget what that was, but I think that was like forty bucks retail. Retail, yeah,
1: the, maybe. Uh, yeah, the price tags yeah. on the.
0: Here we go, thirty nine ninety six on the price <laughs> tag.
1: Am I good or what?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's all there. <laughs> Here we go. Someone's a fan of the Crossfire. I'd love a reissue of the Crossfire with Rumbler. There we go. <laughs> um,
1: it, it might also it might also be worth mentioning or asking. So the previous question was about ideas coming from uh, Takara, uh, which which reminds me that Hasbro used outside inventors. So Hasra had all of these smart, talented people internally in Rhode Island who were defining ideas, drawing things, building things. But also, you would regularly receive visits from outside freelance toy inventors. And some of this was board games or dolls, but also boys' action. Was there a formalized process for how, I mean, you know, toy fair is a certain time of year. So you have a cycle of development. Um, Was there sort of a time of year that you were getting visits from toy inventors? Was it?
2: Toy Toy fair is a big time of year. Okay. But you would get, you'd get visits from inventors and we would go visit inventors on what we called inventor trips. Okay. We'd go to Chicago, we'd go to Minneapolis, we'd go to LA regularly. Um, maybe twice a year, uh, they would come to us, they'd visit Hasbro. Um, so there was a constant back and forth. Um, we had, we had, uh, inventors show ideas for G.I. Joe constantly, uh, and they were constantly rejected by the R and D teams until I took over the, as VP of boys marketing, um, because, by 1990, the GI Joe brand was was uh, suffering. Um, not that it was going to go away, but we saw the sales decline almost in half. Um, I mean, the, the the peak year for GI Joe sales was 1986. 1986, GI Joe did about 186 million dollars. We never we and and that was, uh, you know, we were cooking on all cylinders. Um, that would never be achieved again. Uh, the best we got to was about 130 million in 92, 93, um, in that time timeframe, um, because the marketplace had just gotten so crowded with boys action figures. GI Joe was setting the pace, Masters, Masters of the Universe was released almost simultaneously with GI Joe. Both dominated the early eighties the late 80s was dominated by teenage mutant ninja turtles eventually batman and then marvel superheroes so there was a tremendous competition um and uh my insistence when i came back onto the brand was we're going to make good toys we're not in the business of selling model kits anymore because to me that's what gi joe was from 82 to about 98 uh, 88 89 they were great snap together model kits um, that would roll and you could fantasize and the guns would elevate and the turrets would turn and, but they didn't do anything other than that, than that. Um, and so I insisted on toyizing the line. The other thing I insisted on is when I saw a good inventor item that I, an idea that I I thought could fit into the line uh, I insisted that it be done. And I took no, no prisoners from R and D who, who said, well, we could have thought of that. Well, why didn't you? Or we could have developed that. Well, why didn't you? Um, and the first real inventor item that we brought into the GI Joe line was Fort America. If you guys remember that one, uh, the the transforming tank that turned into a battle station with the ripple fire guns. Now, <laughs> what the what the inventor brought us, okay, was we're going to combine Transformers and GI Joe. Okay, and here's how we're gonna do it. And it was a tank that turned into a, you know, the treads would fold underneath, and it became a battle bunker. Okay, what we when when I asked that we we take it into the line, the R and D guys didn't want to do it until I said, you guys have got to figure out a way of putting this into the line because this is going to be one of our lead TV commercial products. And when I look at that packaging, I wish I still had it today. When I look at that packaging, I mean, you can't get a much more exciting product than that. Okay. The, 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 I call it, if you look at the, uh, the front of the vehicle with those, you know, the, the, the six or whatever, uh, rocket tubes, you, you, you swipe the uh, lever across the, uh, the missile launcher, and they would fire, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, right out the front of the barrel. Um, You had the electronic sounds. I mean, that was all done by working with the inventor and the R&D group and saying, we want an exciting toy. We're not making model kits anymore. R&D hated it because it didn't look like a real tank. I didn't care. To me, that was something that was going to excite an eight or nine-year-old kid. That's what I'm in the business of doing, getting an 8, 9, 10-year-old kid excited. I don't care if it doesn't look like a real vehicle. We had plenty of those, and we would do plenty of those. But this was an example of how do you merge Transformers with uh, G.I. Joe without calling it Transformers, all right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and there it is right there in all its glory.
0: I was, g- was going to say this. This is a that would. I'm, I, I don't. I don't want to divert us too far away because this is going to that. That would be a massive sort of area of conversation. I'm sure, but this was at a time where the toys are being marketed to kids to play with rather than to to collectors to you know. Correct. To,
2: Correct. And I'm yeah. gonna. I know I'm gonna hear somebody say, "Well, look at all that lousy neon orange." You know, I, I live that at every convention. Why did you make everything neon? You know, well, when kids are faced with buying a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, or do you remember Toxic, the Toxic Adventure? Adventure, right? That's what that's what an eight or nine year old kid was seeing. Is they were walking into a toy store and they were seeing their eyes being assaulted with neon. <laughs> hey, you know, we can't keep making O.D. green and tan. And, and think we're selling uh you know exciting toys we had to go after 8 9 10 year old eyeballs and that's how we did it
1: work what, what's a, what struck what, what I'll,
0: I'll let you ask the next question Tim. what <laughs> what struck me about the the neon um was particularly um the weapons so you get like the the weapons tree in in neon uh, orange and even before that you know the likes of uh recoil had like a baby blue kind of Uh, Mm -hmm. assault rifle um what was what was the 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 thinking about uh about the different colors on on the on the web on on the the weapons accessories specifically
2: to make to make them stand out at retail it was all about making something stand out at retail so when you walk into a store and you're confronted with um okay i've got five bucks in my pocket and i can buy a master's uh, a teenage ninja turtles figure that's three times the size and bulk of a of a gi joe or i can buy a batman figure uh which is coming off a hundred million dollar movie or i can buy six inch or however four and a half inch maybe five inch marvel comics legends characters or whatever we wanted to communicate that we were giving you more pieces for your money you're not just getting a figure you're getting a lot more accessories and so by coloring the accessories those bright colors yeah it wasn't realistic but boy it to a mother it said hey look at this for four bucks or three bucks whatever it was at, at retail at that time you know look at all i'm getting i'm getting a great figure and look at all these pieces that it comes with that's why we did it that's why it was done
1: yeah as a, as a comparison you know, uh, Kirk, you've used the word "bold" when describing the GI Joe toy packaging for 1982, right? The logo, the graphics, the paintings—just the presentation. Paintings big, the figures over here, and as as purists or aficionados, we 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 look back at that and maybe we long for just that. Um, but you compare that to um, something like. It's like okay, so maybe ten years later, the comparison is uh, the animated Batman toys, which are the packaging is so handsome and restrained. It's like the show design just became a small toy package, and the toys have you know very few seams and, um, and you compare that to N- Ninja Turtles, and you know a year or two later, uh, Power Rangers, and um every month um you, you the two of you probably know diamond previews catalog no um and the market may be moving away from something like diamond previews for all sorts of reasons but for all these years uh in in a monthly cycle i will i will skim the entire 3 or 400 page catalog and I'll mark it up and then that's what my store my manager actually does the order on the computer at the end of the month our initial order from diamond and Years ago, I learned that sort of the average book cover at a bookstore gets someone's attention, someone's eyeballs on it for uh, less than a second. And I thought, that can't be true. Uh, But surely it is, because we've all been in a bookstore or comic book store and you're going like this and something, a logo, a sexy character, a certain combination of colors, some burst of text, um, something familiar like Batman. you know, what's going to grab you and, and covers are often not sort of indicative of the interior. And just just three days ago, I was flipping through previews and we had sort of forgotten the deadline for the order was the next day. So instead of my normal sort of three, four hour having coffee, um, looking at every page carefully, uh, I was doing the really fast version and I thought there are so many publishers that aren't the main six or 10 premier, premier publishers. Uh, that get distributed by Diamond that are in sort of the back half catalog. And each of these covers is, you know, there's like three columns per page and they're like an inch tall and they're getting like a third of a second. And I'm not even reading sort of the title or the writer or the artist, the description. It's like, (laughs) and then I grab my sharpie and I circle it five copies of that one. Right. Yeah. And every so often I'll write something mean to my manager, like, this is bad. Can you believe this crap? Um, (laughs) And so, um, so, you know, this idea that Kirk's talking about, you know, it's, it's, it's Kirk, it's mostly moms that were doing the purchasing, right. Was that, that was, was that sort of an established like uh, retail behavior fact? Yeah. I mean, I mean, think about it. And when I, when
2: I teach marketing, you know, when you talk about what is a market, a market is, is people with the, the um, ability and the willingness to buy. And you have to have both, all right? Well, certainly an eight-year-old boy or an eight-year-old child has the willingness to buy. They'll buy anything, right? (laughs) Do they have the ability to buy? No, mom controls the ability to buy. I use mom as in the generic parent term, okay? Um, Mom is the one who controls the purse strings. So you got you to gotta appeal to both. In the, toy, in the toy business, you have to be able to appeal to both. You got to get the kid interested and you got to get him to demand from the mom, I want that toy. And then she's got to look at that toy and decide, is there enough value in that toy? Am I getting enough bang for my buck? I'm going to lay out $5 for this. Today, you're laying out $20 for an action figure, right? So uh, you know, what am I getting for my money? One of these guys.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I my my follow-up question from a few months uh minutes ago was um can you think of some other G.I. Joe product or additions that came from outside inventors.
2: Oh yeah. Uh well, um uh let me think now specifically i wish i could go back Uh, sonic fighters well yes and no um because what we did is we we saw what was going on in the um the little mini car business the hot wheels car business majorette was a company that came out of nowhere i believe they were a canadian company and they came out of nowhere with hot wheel vehicles that had lights and sound and for like three years dominated literally dominated that uh, hot wheels category. Uh, so I don't know that it was necessarily an, an inventor. Um, that I think that was we we kind of just stole that idea. hey, it's in the marketplace and so fair mm. game. but rather than having it make just lights and sound can we have it make speech yeah. um, as well give commands um, It was a great item that we never did uh, that would have been revolutionary had it been done. Um, Marty Abrams from uh, Migo Toys came to us. He was uh, he was an inventor. Um, after Migo went bankrupt, he became an inventor, um, and he came to us with his partners. and Marty was very, very clever. Um, Marty uh, is brilliant, and uh, he I think of him as an evil genius because had this succeeded, uh, Marty would have been making a nice royalty off every G.I. Joe figure ever sold in perpetuity. <laughs> um, so it was a brilliant idea. Um, he came to us with the idea that you could make a play set or vehicles that would talk via the simple use of molding a different uh, code into the bottom of every G.I. Joe figure's foot. So that, and which would cost you nothing, but literally the figures would be the same figure, just that the bottom of the foot, instead of being flat, completely flat, it would have a series of cams, slots, um, and then depending on how that slot fit into a place on a vehicle or a playset, it would activate a voice chip in the vehicle or the playset. And you bring the character to life and, you know, 20, 30 seconds of speech. We thought it was great and we were willing to make a commitment until we took it to research and we showed it to kids. And this was at the same time that we had vehicles shooting things and, you know, uh, vehicles exploding, you know, that kind of thing. The kids thought it was boring. They thought it was ho-hum. And... Marty was so, Marty was so upset that he insisted that we rerun the research and that he be there to witness the research. And we said, sure, come along. And he even agreed, Well, I guess we really don't have anything here. Um, but that could have been had it worked, that could have been a real, you know groundbreaking type of toy because uh, it would have been and that would have been in like 92 93 era. So that would have been like a bit of high tech being added to the G.I. Joe brand. Um, What else from other inventor ideas? I invented a number of things for the Hall of Fame line, the 12-inch line, when I left Hasbro. Um, So a lot of, not a lot, but a number of things that I had come up with uh, from marketing ideas. uh, Life Magazine uh, that they did, the Life Magazine Astronaut, the Life Magazine figures were done because of, um, mine and Don Levine's work on putting together concepts for Hasbro. Um, but they didn't really, I mean, it, it's tough to sell an invention to anybody. It's even tougher to sell it to Hasbro.
1: Mark, do you want to ask about or amuse about the big anniversary for the year?
0: um well I, there was there was one specific question that I wanted to to ask about before maybe we we get to that which was sort of returning back to those early early years and you were talking a bit about it kirk that you'd be getting through the um the the comic the i guess the the work in progress comic from from marvel to to rev- review so sort of just interested to get your insight on what that process was was like and if what sort of uh, notes that you kind of would would send back and specifically if there was anything that you said ever said no to
2: um no it is not You know, all honesty there was nothing I never said no to um and my job was almost to be a rubber stamp um I got a kick out of being able to read the scripts and then get the artwork uh sent to me with the b- word balloons you know filled in so i saw the initial script would approve it and and i had like a one-day turnaround because there was no like can you keep this and can i read it no no this is what i did at night right? okay i didn't read comic books anymore i was reading these kind of scripts but they were still comic books then i'd look over all the artwork um and i think the only things that what i would do is i'd take a red a red uh marker uh you know pen a sharpie or or just a red pen and i would make sure that the um the, the characters looked as much as they could you know i'd highlight what i thought looked weird mm-hmm. or with the vehicles i'd say get rid of this missile this isn't on the vehicle so i, I served as kind of a quasi editor i called myself a technical advisor um and and that's that's all it was you know bob instilled in me the idea that um, each medium has its own audience and its own job to do. And, um, for instance, um, I think had he not said that, had I not worked on the business, I'm convinced that a couple of product managers after me would have insisted that the figures have little circles where the elbows were to indicate the rivets that, um, were on the toy. Um, So it's like each each uh, medium has its own uh, audience and its own job to do. Mm -hmm. So don't make uh, the same audience. The comic book lives in a different universe than the toy. The toy lives in a different universe than the TV animated series. And all three uh, live in their own total universe. As long as they're all seem to be working consistently, then let things go. Um, and so that that was my approach. Unless I saw something really egregious, I just rubber-stamped it. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think I built up a lot of trust and confidence with Larry and the team at Marvel because of that. Um, I do recall, though, that when I had left the brand and then came back onto the brand, um, I started asking questions like, how come the covers of these comic books are so boring? Um, <laughs> how come you know, uh, I don't see any, um, how come I don't see any rifles or any guns or how come I don't see, you know, fighting taking place. And I was told that, um, uh, one of the product managers after I had left had insisted that the G.I. Joe comics not depict, uh, anybody with a weapon in their hands. Larry, in fact, told me that. He said, we can't, put guns in their hands anymore i said who who told you that so you know that was kind of bizarre and and thankfully it only lasted a couple of issues mm-hmm. um but the, there was that kind of a uh, quasi edict that had been issued to marvel um that when you on the cover you, you couldn't show uh people with with uh pistols or rifles so so
1: um
0: so Kirk- do you know do you know what period do you know about what period that was? I was just wondering gonna, which which issues it might have uh, impacted Where I'm I guess
2: I'm going to guess 86 through 88 somewhere in there. Now, I'm not going to say that you know that like if you study mm-hmm. those covers carefully in that era you're going to notice I believe um, an almost total lack of weapons in figures hands.
0: Yeah, maybe maybe what, around here. That's
2: what Larry told me. I mean, I didn't go back and 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 invalidate that, but when he told me that, I said, Well then that ends here now that I'm in charge of the brand. Mm-hmm. I want to see the the biggest, most exciting guns in people's hands, and I want them shooting and I want to see explosions. It said, you know <laughs> that, I want to get get exciting covers. I don't want to see a boring cover anymore.
1: So Kirk, the first stretch of years you were reading all the scripts and reading all of the photocopied uh lettered and inked pages and some some yes. pencil pages and then you went to hasbro direct and then you came back to boys toys but were now higher up you were now promoted
2: that's promoted to a marketing director
1: marketing director then so, I was,
2: and i left again <laughs> they moved me over to uh Run Hasbro's Play School Baby division, and I did that for like a year and a half, and then I came back as VP of Boys Toys.
0: Just to capture it on film, um, what was your reaction when you were promoted uh, to uh, to place uh, Play School um, Baby? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Well, it was more money. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, 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 I've heard the story before, and I just it just made me laugh so much that you you you'd just come back from Japan, right? And then you got you're meant to be relaxing, sleeping. You get a you get a call in for, uh, that that you that you have to pick up to give you some news. Wow, that, I, um,
2: I forget. Yeah, that you got a great memory. I forget that story's going around. Yeah, I got back from Japan with we had just been working on the Crossfire. And I'd come back from Japan and I was jet lagged and I went to bed uh, at like two in the afternoon, maybe. And at four o'clock, I got a phone call. My wife came upstairs and she said, uh, said, Kirk, you got a phone call from Steve Schwartz. What's wrong? My, you know, Terry always thinks something's wrong. And I said, I don't know what's, you know, he knows I'm not going to be in the office until tomorrow. So he says, can you come in? And I said, Steve, I I just got back from from Tokyo from, you know, I'm exhausted. Well, I got some big news for you. And I said, well, tell me the news over the phone. (laughs) So he goes, "No, I really want to tell it to you in person. And I said, no, I I can't, Steve. I'm exhausted. So he told me that I got promoted to uh, to uh, associate vice president or whatever the hell it was at the time uh, of Play School Baby. And um, that was like, really? I went, really? <laughs> I was like, not... <laughs> I said, I don't want to sound, I, you know, I went in the next day. He didn't make me go in that day. I went in the next day and I just said, Steve, I really appreciate the opportunity. I didn't mean to sound like I was not excited by it all. <laughs> but, you know, he understood. He understood. Yeah, it was a great opportunity. I mean, if you're going to be in the toy business, you want to, you need to learn all aspects of it. And, um, you know, it was an opportunity for me to learn an area of the business that I knew nothing about, which was infant toys. Um, And that really helped me in my thinking when I moved back into G.I. Joe or Boy's Toys. I always say G.I. Joe, but actually it was moved back into leading up Boy's Toys. Um, So, you know, he Steve was always uh, became, you know, another good, good friend at Hasbro. And he was always looking for ways to move people around and make use of their talents um, and like I say, that was another reason why going to work at Hasbro for me was never a job. It was always, um, uh, exciting. Uh, I called myself an intrapreneur because I was able to develop businesses within Hasbro that hadn't been done before and achieve some success.
1: So, so Kirk, when you, so the first stretch of years, you are reading scripts, reading art and approving it. And then you go to Hasbro Direct, but you come back. Or did you go back to being the person who was reading and approving the comics? Or had that now been handed off to someone and not That
2: that, that, that doubt had been handed off to junior people, but uh, a product manager. Um, But what I would insist on is, you know, meet with me and tell me what you're telling them to do. Um, Because again, I said, I don't want to have you telling people drawing the covers that we don't want to see guns and explosions on the covers of the magazine anymore. You know, I, so, you know, just run by me what the changes are that you're, you're looking to do. So that was all. I was kind of a hands-off manager as much as I could be. I, I, I had people that I really relied on, but they were younger and, you, you know, they were new to the toy business. So, um you know, you just had to have a little bit of hands-on. This is not my role had expanded beyond, you know, w- reading scripts. Now, you know,
1: this isn't a question. This is this is just a statement. Part of the sort of Mark and I were trying to think of an angle for today's interview uh, because you are a toy guy, um, and some of these stories you have you have told before at conventions or interviews, and so we were looking for something. Uh, a little different to talk about. And we are a, com- uh, a podcast about comics. So the sort of statement, since it's not a question, but if but please feel fr- free to react, feel free to react is that. Um, I, think, I think you were in a right place at a right time to be the comics liaison at Hasbro for those first years because you were a comics reader, but a, a comics junkie. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a lot about G.I. Joe in the early 80s that was people, right place, right time, not, and not just at Hasbro, but in this, in this particular connection between Marvel Comics and Hasbro. Um, uh, and and one, of the, one of the comparisons that I always make is um, DC and Marvel did license other properties as comics in the 80s, and G.I. Joe was the best of them. And, you know, if you're ever sort of wondering, it's like, well, why wasn't G.I. Joe? Why didn't it do more of this? Or why wasn't it better? Uh, the way I look at it is, uh, no, you want to see what G.I. Joe would have been if it hadn't been this particular pick of talent and arrangement and deal. Like, look at some of those other mm-hmm. toy comics that didn't last as long. Like, they, some of them were good. Maybe all of them were at least good. But they they didn't, they didn't rise up to this level. Uh, so maybe maybe there's the segue Mark. You want to, uh, Kirk, do you have
2: I, a, I, a, I appreciate that comment, by the way.
1: <laughs> you're welcome. Thank you. Um, which is why I was so, I was so specific on, you know, where were you getting your comics in the sixties yeah. yeah. and seventies. Um, Mark, do you want to segue to some talk of the anniversary?
0: Yeah. So, so we're now, I guess, 40 years on as uh, the an- anniversary. So, uh, particularly around the the comics. So so did you have any sort of thoughts on getting to this landmark and, and also specifically, are you still reading G.I. Joe comics?
2: Well, I don't I don't like to think about time. It struck me when you said it's the 40th anniversary. It was like it seems like it's only been yesterday, because I can still think back and and some of the some of the memories are still so clear in my head. Um, I've, been, I've been writing on LinkedIn. I've been writing a uh, series of uh, histories of Hasbro, bits and pieces of Hasbro history, because I was asked to be a contributor to um, the history channels, the Toys That Built America series. And they got so much wrong on GI Joe. Um, they interviewed me for almost six hours uh, up in Boston at the GBH studios that um, I thought there would be a lot more in the show um, and so much of it's on the cutting room floor, which is normal, but just some, so much of what they reported, I don't, I felt I had to correct. I think the shows are great. I mean, I know what they tried to do. It was a dramatization uh, comparing Meryl Hassenfeld with Ruth Handler, you know, that. The woman in charge of Barbie and the creator of Barbie <laughs> and and Meryl, who theoretically was the creator of G.I. Joe, um, that I felt I had to correct uh, some of it. So I've been writing on LinkedIn and I'm in on Facebook um, a, a series of uh, corrections that talk about the history of Hasbro uh, as it relates to G.I. Joe. And it's leading up to um, there's always been this myth that G.I. Joe was canceled in 1978 because of the oil embargo and that the price of plastic had driven the cost of making G.I. Joe toys. Uh, so made them so expensive. And um, also it's a, 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 the belief that G.I. Joe, uh, the G.I. Joe line disappeared because of the Vietnam War and opposition to the Vietnam War. Well, it's 1978 when G.I. Joe is dropped and that's like three years past the Vietnam War when we, you know, left Saigon. Um, so I won't tip off what my theory is, but I've come up with a theory by by analyzing um all of the Hasbro catalogs. I have a complete collection of the Hasbro catalogs from 1952 up until maybe two or three years ago. Um, so I'm focusing in on those that affected uh the J. Joe brand and I'm trying to analyze it. Um and I believe the last thing it was, was the cost of oil and opposition to to the Vietnam War. I think it all boils down to um, the brand was 14 years old. Uh, you had tremendous new competitors that, you know, G.I. Joe had awakened a, a giant in the category of action figure that had never existed before. And so you've got a host of all new characters uh, that are competing with G.I. Joe, and that's what killed G.I. Joe. In seventy-eight. It wasn't anything to do. That was convenient excuse was Vietnam War and oil, the cost of the plastic. Those were convenient excuses. Hasbro didn't want to admit that it was the lack of true innovation in the brand. So I don't know if that answered the question. I don't know if I got a, I, I went around in a circle or not, but that's that's you know what I've been working on.
0: Yeah, so uh we're we're almost two and a half hours in and you've been incredibly just like uh, 40 40 years
2: seems like only yesterday (laughs) (laughs) two and a half hours seems like hey we just started this (laughs) yeah
0: exactly yeah it it flies by
2: are you kidding me oh my gosh uh
0: so so i didn't don't want to monopolize your your time but it's uh it's been it's been absolutely uh well you know wonderful sort of getting your recollections and on all of this and um, I've been careful not to kind of deviate too too far into too different too many different avenues because it would mean that it would be a, a five hour conversation in, <laughs> instead. Well, we can but, do
2: that in, in installments.
0: Um, yeah, may, maybe we can we, maybe we can re- revisit and, and sort of uh, and get your thoughts on some of the the other things because I'd like uh, I'd love to to get your take on on where you think the the property is today, for for example, I love uh, you know, forty happy. years on. Yep. be happy. Um, and uh and see so we go. Here's uh here's another here's one of the, the watchers who who wanted to shout oh. out. Great interview. Thanks, thank you guys for bringing this to the Joe fans. Thank you, Kirk, for being willing to spend your time and giving this to the community. Yojo for life. Thank Yo you, Joshua. Joe Joshua. Thanks. <laughs> so uh yeah, I think um that all that remains to say is uh yeah, a big thank you. Oh, thank there we you, go. Guys. Thanks, Kirk. <laughs> okay, that's great. Hey, and Tim, uh, I, still, thanks I, still,
2: to- I keep saying I'm going to get up to your store. So this spring, um, I already told Terry that we're going to head up to uh, Tim's store sometime in the uh, next few weeks. So Sounds I'll be in great. touch. Sounds great.
0: Brilliant. The the image there on the, on the screen is credit Diana Davis, who who wanted to say uh, a big hello. Oh, great. As, yeah, I just noticed well. that. Big friend hey, of the Diana,
2: show. thank you. That is fantastic. I really <laughs>
0: appreciate that. So uh I think yeah that that is pretty much um us done so we'll uh leave it there getting a few oh few messages in probably from people saying thank you there we go some more thank yous uh love the interview yojo i think that's from Rachel on on facebook awesome. uh, and another thank it. you there uh so yeah until uh, next that time until next time uh, okay a big Yo thank you, you that's the way to do it okay uh hold on and we'll we'll play the we'll play the outro and then just quickly say uh bye at the uh the end again (laughs)